this is going to be the first official um, episode in this series on uh, prophecy. So I'm calling it prophetic um, because I have <clears throat> done my best to list out every possible question I've come across or heard when it comes to the gift of prophecy or the role of prophets um, or how that fits in the New Testament church. Uh, it's been a minute. I haven't been here in so long. So um, a week for me feels like a month. <clears throat> My family and I got absolutely wrecked with a nasty virus, man. It just laid us out. Um, usually I can get over sickness two to three days. <clears throat> so if my voice cracks, it's not puberty, it's sickness, okay? So give me a break. But my voice will crack at least 845 times, so give me a break. Try to look right past it, okay? I still have like a little congestion around the voice box, but <clears throat> after about nine, ten days, I'm at least recovered enough to be here talking about this, okay? So, um, if you guys didn't know, a couple weeks back, I shared a prophetic word that I believe the Lord gave me in the middle of the night. <clears throat> After my studying on like visions and dreams and prophecy, I came to find out that God often speaks in the, the night hours. Uh, Job talks about the visions of the night. Daniel's given <clears throat> Nebuchadnezzar, Pharaoh, um, I'm trying to think, uh, Abimelech, given dreams, visions in the night. Um, and so I thought, hey, maybe that actually lends credence to the fact that I heard from God. And so... Um, I received a lot of good feedback after sharing that. I just felt compelled to let people know. Um, <laughs> how old's the kid? Sounds like he's barely hitting puberty. Oh, Andrew, you son of a gun. I'm glad you're here. Good to see you. Good to see your username, stirring up strife as normal. Um, but after I shared that, I got a lot of feedback. I got a, a lot of uh, responses and messages from you guys. So thank you for those that stepped out in faith. And uh, just wanted to be faithful and share what the Lord had placed on your heart. And um, I think I have a lot more understanding around that vision that I was given. But there was also uh, quite a few people who kind of pushed back against the idea of God speaking in that capacity. Um, and and, the, and the, the, almost the fear of misrepresenting God. And almost this like, hey, let's not put words into God's mouth. Let's be careful. And I get that. I love that people are standing on the word of God and, and not compromising. People are trying to defend uh, what they believe is, is true of scripture. Um, so I get that. I, I love the heart of discernment and the, the heart of standing on the truth and not misrepresenting God. But at the end of the day, I am <clears throat> very much convinced okay, that this was indeed um, a wake-up call, a call to repentance that God uh, gave me. And so I think there were layers to it. Uh, there was a layer of personal um, application. There was a layer of this is for the community that I've been called to shepherd, that I've been entrusted with. Um, and then there was a layer of this is touching the global church. And then there was also the layer of uh, people who, individuals who hear um, the vision or the, the message. Uh, there's, there's a layer of personal conviction and application for you guys. So um, after, after talking about my vision and hearing all the feedback, and I thought, you know what, we need to really dial in what the gift of prophecy, what prophecy looks like in the Old Testament, what the prophetic role is, what the role of prophet is in both the Old and New Testament. We really need to dial in these things and make sure uh, we're not saying things that God never said. And so um, throughout this series, there's going to be seven episodes. I'm going to do my best, okay, Lord willing. I'm going to get four episodes out this week, okay? So my job this week is to pump out content because I've been backlogged, spiritually constipated for the last week, just sitting and, and stewing in this, and I need to get it out. Okay, so I'm going to get at least four of these out, 
And the next week, Lord willing, again, if I don't get wrecked by some kind of nasty virus from like China, um, I, we'll get three different uh, episodes out next week, okay? So we'll, total of seven. Uh, today we're going to be talking about the, the definition of prophecy biblically. How do we define that? And then the delivery logistics of it. In other words, when God speaks to people, specifically prophets, um, what does that delivery often look like? What, is, what are the logistics behind the, the, the method through which God relays a message? How does that often look? Is there consistency all across the board? Is it always the same? We're going to ask a bunch of questions, okay? Episode number two, we're going to talk about the New Testament prophets, the, the finalizing of the canon of Scripture, and then uh, this concept of the sons of the prophets or the school of the prophets. And, and what does it look like to actually train? Is that possible to train the gift of prophecy if, in fact, that's still something that's, you know, going on in the church now that we have the finalized canon of Scripture? Episode three, we'll talk about <clears throat> Old Testament prophecies. So we'll go back, look at all these examples of prophetic words and visions and dreams. Um, episode four, we'll be specifically focusing on visions and the concept of what does it look like for someone to receive a vision when God gives a vision? What does it look like? What surrounds it? Episode five, we'll talk about dreams. Okay, so dreams will be fun. And then episode six, we'll talk about false prophets, discerning false words, lying visions. And then episode seven, okay, we're going to talk about the New Testament guidelines for the gift of prophecy, uh, specifically in 1 Corinthians um, and what that looks like for the New Testament church. And if indeed, okay, the canon of scripture, now that it's closed, if that means the gift of prophecy and the role of prophet is gone, okay, then what do we do with 1 Corinthians you know, 12, 13, 14, and the guidelines God, uh, Paul gives to the Corinthian church? So that's where we're going. Today, specifically, I'm going to give you a bunch of questions to think through. I'm going to answer them as best as I can. I'm, I'm in no way an inexhaustible source. Uh, I will do my best to um, answer these appropriately and biblically and logically. Okay, so first we'll talk about what is genuine prophecy today. Uh, and if you want the timestamps, uh, they'll be released after the video, obviously, because I have no idea where God is going with this um, and how long we'll spend on each point. But at least look in the YouTube description. For those of you that are on TikTok, go to YouTube, click the link in my bio, and you'll see in the YouTube description of this video um, a general outline of this message. Questions we're going to answer. We're going to answer, what is genuine prophecy? Is prophecy always future-oriented? Uh, what is the point or the purpose of prophecy? Does God always speak to people in the same way? Does he speak to the prophets in the same way? And what commonalities do they all have? <clears throat> Does a prophet always have prophecy on tap? Like, can they just access it and just just, mm, just mind, go, go into, you know, the state of prophecy and just grab a word out of thin air. Can a prophet actually like just access that gift and turn it on and control it and manipulate it as they see fit? Um, does a prophet always know if God is speaking? In other words, when God speaks, is it always abundantly crystal clear that it's him? Um, does God reveal a clear time frame for a prophetic word? Does he always give a sense of, hey, this is when it will happen. This is what it will look like. Or is there some room for generalities? Does God always give the meaning or the purpose of a prophetic vision immediately <clears throat> or at all? Is there, are there some times where God gives a vision or a, a word and there's not immediate understanding or interpretation? Um, can a prophet see or hear the right thing okay, and still make a wrong conclusion or make a wrong interpretation? Um, and does God give prophetic insight in pieces sometimes? Is it sometimes delayed where God will actually delay the rest of the word so that you stay, or the, the prophet stays reliant upon him. 
And then the last question we'll answer today is, does God always give practical instruction or application with a prophetic word? Is there always this clear cut, do this, here's what I want you to do, or is there some room for the prophet or the one receiving the word to make the appropriate decision? Okay, so these are some questions we're tackling today. Um, We'll get to dreams and visions and false prophets and false prophecies in the later episodes, but today we're dealing with what is genuine prophecy. And so the reason I titled this like what the conceptions, misconceptions about biblical prophecy is because a lot of people misunderstand the answer to these questions. <clears throat> and I know some of you think like, I know, I know the answer to these. You'd be surprised uh, after my <laughs> so many hour long study on this. I came to learn a lot. I, I was really humbled by this, to be honest. Um, so, you know, I spent a lot of time kind of trying to sum up what is prophecy what the heck is genuine prophecy? If I could dial in and give a clear, succinct definition of what prophecy is or what it means to prophesy, what does that mean? And I looked all across the different resources and websites and scholars and theologians and there's not this like clear cut, this is, there are uh, aspects or characteristics to what a prophecy is or what it looks like to prophesy. So let me give you kind of a bullet list real quick. What is genuine prophecy? Well, uh, in its most basic form, prophecy is a message from God. So if you want to just boil it down to its most you know, simplest form, it's just a message from God. Uh, therefore, to prophesy is to speak forth from God, who is the divine source. Okay, so uh, prophecy is revelatory in nature, meaning it reveals, uncovers what wasn't once known or understood, um, <clears throat> brings clarity, brings insight, uh, reveals what is hidden. Uh, so prophecy has a revealing nature to it. Um, it's sourced in God. We know that it doesn't start with the person, but God is the divine source of whatever prophetic word he gives to a person. Whatever person has a prophetic word, it starts with God, not them. It came from God, not their own imagination. Um, so God is the divine source, which makes it divinely authoritative. Uh, when we talk, talk about prophets receiving prophetic words, it's often led by the Spirit of God. Always, actually, always. It is by the Spirit of God, okay? And then the word that is given always carries a purpose. Sometimes that purpose is to ignite faith. Sometimes that purpose is to cause repentance or to move God's plan of redemption forward. Sometimes it's to exalt His Son, to warn people to turn from sin back to God. Sometimes it's to confirm a decision, right? Sometimes it's to establish the steps and the decisions the person is making as they seek God. Um... And then <clears throat> prophecy is sometimes future-oriented, meaning foretelling. It's you looking into the future, saying what will happen. The prophet receives a word about what is coming. Um, sometimes uh, it's declarative or forthtelling in nature, meaning um, sometimes a prophetic word given to a prophet by God is declaring what is happening about the present which is unseen or maybe un, unknown or misunderstood. Um, so that's why it's, it's revealing in nature. It reveals what is uh, not necessarily fully covered all the time, sometimes, but sometimes it's just misunderstood. And it's bringing clarity to what is partially seen and adding more partial vision. So sometimes a prophetic word is uh, foretelling. Sometimes it's forthtelling. Sometimes it's congregational, meaning the word is for a, a body of people. Sometimes a word is for a nation. Sometimes a word is for an individual or an office, a role, 
Um, and so we'll see this as we navigate this study. But <clears throat> the most basic way to communicate prophecy is it is a message from God. That's it. So to prophesy is to speak from God, who is the divine source of what I'm saying. And again, that prophetic word will be revelatory in nature, uncovering what wasn't once fully known or understood, if at all. Okay? And so that's how I would, when I've scoured the scriptures from Genesis to Revelation, that's the, that's the definition I've seen consistently. Um, and so the question then becomes, and I've kind of already answered this, is prophecy always future-oriented? A common misconception with the, with the subject of prophecy is that it's always about the future. Not necessarily. Scripture shows that prophecy can be foretelling about the future, but also forthtelling can be about the present, or about what happened in the past and bringing clarity to that, or about something that's currently going on that isn't fully understood or seen. Okay, It's not always future-oriented. Um, we see this in 2 Samuel chapter 12. Nathan... Okay, right here, the prophet Nathan comes to David, exposes his sin, right? When David kills Uriah, sleeps with Bathsheba, Nathan is sent by God to uncover that, to reveal and expose David's sin that he's hiding. Okay, so 2 Samuel 12, we'll get to this when we really need to dive in. But here's just a general, <clears throat> when I say prophecy is not always foretelling, here's an example. Nathan is just sent to uncover what is currently happening or what happened already. Uh, Judges chapter 6, verse 7 through 10. It's also another good example. And I could spend a long time on all these different examples, but for sake of moving on, I won't spend too long. I'll give you a few. Judges chapter 6, uh, a prophet is actually sent um, to uh, Israel. When the people of Israel cry out because they're in rebellion, Midian, the Midianites are oppressing them, right? Uh, the Lord sends a prophet to the people. Okay, listen to what the prophet says. He says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, I led you up from Egypt. I brought you out of the house of slavery. Well, God's just sharing through the prophet what he's already done. And I delivered you from the hand of the Egyptians and from the hand of all who oppressed you. I drove them out before you and gave you their land. This is a prophetic word about what God has already done. It's a reminder. Sometimes prophetic words are reminders of what we already know, but don't understand as well as we could. And I said to you, I am the Lord your God. You shall not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell, but you've not obeyed my voice. That's the present dimension right there. <clears throat> That's the present dimension. So the prophet is sent by God to kind of clarify why Israel's in oppression. Israel is going, what the heck, God? Thought you're going to stand with us. And God's going, you're not standing with me. You're not standing with me. Look at what I've done for you. Look at what I told you to do. You have not obeyed my voice. And so the oppression you're experiencing is the natural consequence of your rebellion. So the prophet is sent to just kind of clarify why Israel's in that situation. Nothing about the future, just a clarification. Uh, sometimes a prophetic word is given to the prophet uh, for a decision that needs to be made. Uh, sometimes by a king, sometimes by a priest, sometimes by the prophet himself or the nation of Israel. Right? And they're seeking insight and understanding. And I need practical application. God, what the heck am I doing? 1 Samuel 22, 5, David is going, hey, uh. yeah, he went from there to Mizpah. And he's on the run. Um, and he said to the king of Moab, please let my father and my mother stay with you till I know what God will do for me. <clears throat> then he left uh, his parents with the king of Moab. 
and they stayed with him all the time that David was in the stronghold, okay? Then the prophet Gad said to David, okay, the prophet Gad says to David on behalf of the Lord, don't remain in the stronghold, depart, leave, go into the land of Judah. So David departed, went to the forest of Hereth. Nothing about the future, just about what David should do currently. It's a clarification. It's for a decision David is needing to make. Do I stay? Do I leave? My parents are here. What if Saul finds me? The prophet Gad, sent by God, clarifies. Here's what you should do. 1 Kings chapter 1, verse 12, same idea. Now, the word of God comes to Shemaiah, the man of God. And here's what God tells Shemaiah. Shemaiah. Say to Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, solid names, king of Judah, and to all the house of Judah and Benjamin, to the rest of the people. This is what the Lord says. Do not go up or fight against your relatives, the people of Israel. Because Rehoboam has gathered, come, come against Jerusalem, or came to Jerusalem. He assembled all the house of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, 180,000 chosen warriors, like you do on a weekend, to fight against the house of Israel. To restore the kingdom of Rehoboam, the son of Solomon. Because the kingdom of Israel got split. Northern, southern. Uh, Rehoboam, I believe, is in charge of, uh, as the son of Solomon, he's in charge of Judah. Um, so he calls Benjamin out and he goes, hey, let's go against, you know, I forget who it is. It's Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Jeroboam has taken the other ten tribes, essentially, by God's, you know, ordination. And, uh, yeah, they're about to go attack their brothers. <clears throat> And here's what God says, don't, don't do it. Rehoboam wasn't even seeking the word of the Lord. Every man returned to his home for the thing is from me. So God steps in to stop that action. Rehoboam was about to go and destroy his people. And the kingdom split. He goes, well, this isn't good. God promised David, my grandfather, that he'd always have someone sitting on the throne. So I got to go and fix this. And God steps in by the prophet and goes, don't. Nothing about the future, just a clarifying decision. Don't do it, and God intervenes. Sometimes a prophetic word is just intervention to stop the wrong thing. Okay? And I can take you to 1 Kings 4, but I, I think you guys get the point that I'm just trying to show you that prophecy is not always future-oriented. The question then becomes, okay, what is the purpose or the point of prophecy? Not just New Testament, not just Old, but all throughout the entire scriptures and history of, of our world. What is the point of prophecy? Why does God use prophets? And the question that we should ask after that is, hey, does prophecy always accomplish the same thing? Or is there actually variety in purpose? Is there variance? Does the purpose of prophecy always have some underlying foundation but it kind of adapts based on the situation. Let me take you to Ezra chapter 6 and show you what I mean. Okay, uh, We've already seen that God used prophecy to intervene and stop Rehoboam. He used, sent a prophet to stop him from doing the wrong thing. We saw that uh, uh, the, the prophet Gad, I believe, for David, clarifies what David should do. So prophecy was used there as a confirmation for a decision, right? Or in Judges, a clarification of what's going on in the nation of Israel. We're in oppression, life sucks, Midian's just destroying our livestock and ruining our, our Netflix time. What do we do? And the prophet comes out of nowhere and goes, well, you guys rebelled? This is what you get. <laughs> you didn't listen. And so there's a clarification behind that. Sometimes prophecy is used for future, right, as a warning. 
Uh, Ezra chapter 6, verse 14. I'm just trying to load you up because everyone has a view of prophecy. And a lot of the time, people have a one-dimensional view of what prophecy is. And they think the purpose is always this. And it's always going to look like this. And the way God communicates and relays a message will always look like this. And there might be some dimensions of truth to the fact, okay, that there's characteristics of these things that remain consistent. But not everything is going to always be the same. Ezra chapter 6 verse 14 says, The elders of the Jews built and prospered through the prophesying of Haggai the prophet and Zechariah the son of Iddo. They finished their building by decree of the God of Israel and by decree of Cyrus, Darius, Artaxerxes, king of Persia. And the house of God, remember the people of Israel, uh, the Jewish people, okay, specifically um, people of Judah, they come back to Jerusalem under the leading of Ezra. Uh, I don't think Nehemiah is in here yet. He builds the wall. But Ezra has a heart for the temple um, as a priest. And so um, I forget who else it is alongside Ezra. But either way, um, the people of God return from exile. under the. They get permission from the king to go back to Jerusalem to build up the house of God, to build the temple again. And the house was finished on the third day of the month of Adar, in the sixth year of the reign of Darius the king. <clears throat> so look, what does God use the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah? We know those Old Testament prophets that we never read. We should spend more time in these prophets. Haggai and Zechariah actually build up the people so they prosper and their work is accomplished. In other words, the people are going to work, doing their thing, but they're uh, sustained and upheld by the prophetic word of Haggai and Zechariah. Words of encouragement, words of strengthening, words of continuing endurance. And so the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah brings the work of the temple to completion, right? Through the works at the hands of the people for sure, but the prophesying plays a role in them being sustained to keep doing it. It keeps them going. That's how God refreshes and restores and strengthens his people to keep doing it. And that's what we see <clears throat> the prophesying of Haggai and Zechariah doing when they're building the temple. Go to Hosea chapter 9, and God will say this about the prophets. Okay, Here's one of the other reasons or, or purposes behind prophecy. In Hosea chapter 9, it says the prophet is the watchman. And the watchman would look out on beyond the wall into the outside you know, lands to make sure that no enemies were approaching at all or to make sure there were no threats so there's nothing <clears throat> coming near the city that the people need to know about. The watchman stands as a guard, as a defender of the people to let them know, to blow a horn and let people know trouble's coming. So the prophet is the watchman of Ephraim with my God. Yet a fowler snare is on all his ways and hatred in the house of God. So what is one of the main roles of the prophet? To be a watchman, a guard to the ways of the people of Israel. To keep them, to guard them, to look out for them, right? To defend them, to make sure they aren't going to be, aren't going to be, aren't going to be blindsided by any enemy or any threat. Okay, um, Hosea chapter 12, uh, this is what God says about Moses. 
who was a prophet. We often contrast law and prophets. <clears throat> Not contrast them, but you know, clear two clear categories. Elijah represents the prophets. Moses represents the law. Moses was a prophet who was given the law as a mediator to the people of Israel. <clears throat> so Hosea chapter 12, um, it says, By a prophet the Lord brought Israel up from Egypt. Who does God use to bring his people out of Egypt? Well, he uses a prophet, a mouthpiece, someone who declared the word of the Lord. So the prophet Moses brought Israel up out of Egypt. <clears throat> and by a prophet, he was guarded. Okay? He was guarded. Um, so the role of Moses was not only this, okay? But mainly this, to guard and to rescue the people of Israel as a prophet. His prophetic role was one of guarding from threats. How? By proclaiming the word of the Lord. By declaring what God has said as a mouthpiece of God for the people of Israel and to bring them up. Okay? He's a guiding force. He's, he's a, he also plays the role of a leader and a shepherd for sure. Not every prophet does. <clears throat> Some prophets play uh, supplementary roles alongside the king and the priests. Once we get to those roles being established in the nation of Israel. But for right now, <clears throat> when Moses is leading the nation of Israel, Hosea, looking back, um, God you know, says, the Lord brought Israel up by a prophet. That was his means of bringing them out of slavery and, and into um, freedom. Okay? Acts chapter 15, we see the New Testament prophets. And uh, this is what it says about Judas and Silas. Not Judas Iscariot. My guy died years ago. But when we get to Acts 15, <clears throat> Silas, one of the companions of Paul, and we have Judas. Just, I have no idea who Judas is. But either way, they were themselves prophets. Okay, hold on to that. They encouraged and strengthened the brothers with many words. This sounds a lot like Ezra. Sounds a lot like how Haggai, how, <clears throat> who was it, uh, Zechariah, how God uses them to strengthen the hands of the people to keep working. It's almost like, remember when Moses is um, standing at the top of the mountain and Joshua is leading the charge, the people of Israel, into battle? M Moses' arms get tired of holding his hands up. So I think it's Ur and um, Aaron come alongside him and hold his hands up to keep going. That, that's like the best physical image of what the prophetic role is. It's to help keep the hands of the people up. Now, I'm not saying that's the main point of that story. I'm just trying to give you, <clears throat> trying to give you an example of what uh, a physical image that you can actually imagine of what prophecy, the role it plays in the church and what role it's played throughout history, which is a supporting role and an enabling, strengthening role to keep the people doing the things of God. So Judas and Silas are playing that role here. They encourage and strengthen the brothers with many words. Their words of prophecy as prophets are encouraging and strengthening the spirits of the people. And when you're strengthened, when you're encouraged, you can keep going, okay? <coughs> so let me take you to Job, and this will be the last kind of verse I use to explain the purpose. Um, 
As we answer these questions, by no means am I inexhaustibly answering them. I'm just trying to answer them in a sufficient way. I'm just trying to answer them in a way where you go, ah, that makes sense, and I don't need to beat a dead horse, and we can move on. Um, and hopefully get to more practical examples of what I mean. So Job 33, um, <clears throat> take some water, because remember, still recovering. It says, God speaks in one way, and in two, even though man doesn't perceive it. Okay, We'll come back to that when we need to. In a dream, in a vision of the night, who, uh, when deep sleep falls on men, when they slumber on their beds, <clears throat> then he opens the ears of men and terrifies them with warnings. Okay? Now watch. Then he opens um, that he may turn man aside from his deed and conceal pride from a man and keep back his soul from the pit, his life from the perishing that comes by the sword. And so God... One of the reasons God gives prophetic words, and we see this with Abimelech, when Abimelech unknowingly takes Sarah, Abraham's wife, doesn't know it's Abraham's wife or Abram's wife, and God warns him in a dream and goes, you're a dead man walking. He goes, I didn't know. Come on, God, you're fair. He goes, that's why I'm warning you, buddy. Go to Abram. He'll pray for you. <clears throat> God will use prophetic visions, prophetic dreams, uh, prophetic words that men experience on the bed, sleeping late at night. Which, again, is when I got that vision, so I got confirmation from Scripture. But the point is that one of the purposes behind prophetic words or dreams or visions, which there are many, we'll get to this in a minute, <clears throat> but the point is that God would turn people away from living a certain way when they wake up or when they're actually out there in the daylight going to work and doing their life. God is keeping people from perishing from the sword or, or falling to the pit or their soul being you know, taken over by sin or uh, keeping pride from, or men from pride right, by humbling them or keeping them with warnings so that they don't go back and do the sin they keep doing um, or to protect them from doing the wrong thing. Because a lot of the time, imaginations start, a lot of your days <clears throat> start with the imaginations you have the evening prior. So the way I think falling asleep does play a role. It doesn't completely dictate, but it does play a role in the way I will live the next day. Because I, I um, what's it called? I'm not planning how I'm going to live, but I'm almost preemptively laying out <clears throat> what my day will potentially look like, and then I'll do that. It doesn't always work out like that, but the point is the fantasies of people and the imaginations and the plans we make as we're falling asleep um, sometimes do play a role in the way we live the following day. And God will warn, hey, don't do this. <clears throat> and then the person will wake up the next day and their life will be changed or sp you know, spared. So that's one of the roles uh, of the prophetic is when God gives a word, it's to warn people, right? To turn them from sin, to keep them from doing the wrong thing. Think of any time God sends a prophet to Israel when they're in rebellion and idolatry. Okay, so those are some of the main purposes behind prophecy. Is that a complete uh, list? I, I don't think so. Just to give you a flavor for how prophecy often works and what God is doing through it. <clears throat> Whether it's prospering a work or strengthening the hands or watching the people or keeping people from doing the wrong thing or, or guiding the people, right? Like a, like a mother hen with her chicks. Not that I've ever 
really paid much attention to that. Just Jesus uses that analogy himself. Um, so the follow-up question becomes this. Does God always speak to people or prophets in the same way? In other words, is a, is a prophecy or a prophetic word going to come to the prophet the same way all the time, all across the board, regardless of who it is, where they are, that will always be the same? My answer to that <clears throat> is a resounding no. In Numbers chapter 12, and this is not like, we all know God speaks in different ways, okay? But I'm trying to be more pre precise and say when God is prophetically speaking to an actual prophet ordained to be a help to the nation, does, is, is it always going to be the same? Numbers 12, 6 through 8, it says, hear my words. If there's a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him. Now, this is God rebuking Miriam and Aaron for speaking against Moses and his authority, trying to undermine his prophetic authority and the role God's given him to play. So God defends Moses. <clears throat> he goes, look, if there's a prophet among you, I make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Okay? Here's what sets Moses apart. He says, not so with my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him, I speak mouth to mouth. Now that's different than a dream or a vision. At least this is God making the comparison, not me. He's the one making the comparison and going, usually with prophets are among you, I'll speak in a vision. This must be a known thing already established by the time we were, up, were with Moses. This isn't like a new thing where God's like revealing some, some things they've never experienced. This has to be an established thing. If a prophet's among you, I speak in a vision or in a dream. With Moses, I speak mouth to mouth. Clearly, okay, clearly, not in riddles. Not in riddles. And he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? By God's own admission, he says that when he communicates to prophets, most often, the common way of doing that is through a vision or a dream. And it's not always as clear as he speaks to Moses, which is mouth to mouth, face to face, where Moses beholds the form of the Lord. Go work that theology out. And it's not in riddles, unlike, it seems, most often when God speaks to a secondary or other supplementary prophet among the people, which is to be in riddles. Will, will God speak in riddles? It seems to be that's what, he, that's what he's saying. Not always, but the comparison still stands. Look, <clears throat> some will say, well, God's not saying he, he speaks in riddles ever. He's just saying what he doesn't do. <clears throat> That's silly because God is making a comparison with Moses and other prophets. Okay? So if God is comparing how he speaks to Moses versus a way he's never spoken to anyone, the comparison doesn't have that much power. <laughs> it's not that good of a comparison. It doesn't mean much. The value in what he's saying is the actual comparison God is drawing. I speak to other prophets in a vision or a dream, in riddles, not mouth to mouth, not face to face. With Moses, though, it's not in a vision or a dream or in riddles. It's clearly. So the way God communicates to prophets is not always what? Clearly. In terms of like, all the details surrounding what is needing to what is yeah, what needs to be known 
with Moses, you know, God will clarify the when, the where, the how, the what. It's just all the details, not always, but a lot of the times, all the details surround the word God has given to Moses. It's just a personal interaction and conversation and friendship Moses has with God. The dreamer or the visionary prophet doesn't really have that. Moses is uniquely different, <clears throat> which is why we're going to see Jesus be the greater Moses and the ultimate prophet. Okay, But the point is, there is a category for God speaking in riddles, which is not clearly, but that doesn't mean it's not helpful. Okay, When we say God speaks in riddles sometimes, or, or not as clearly as he did to Moses, that doesn't mean he speaks in a way where it doesn't profit anyone. It doesn't mean he speaks with no purpose. <clears throat> Usually the issue when it comes to interpreting or understanding, that's not with God as the deliverer, it's with us as the receiver. Right? We're, we're the issue often. I don't understand what God has wanted. So we'll, we'll get to the clarity aspect, but I'm just trying to show, show you right now that no, God does not always talk to prophets the same. He doesn't. And we're not even just talking about the, the common everyday lay folk of the nation of Israel. You know, We're talking about prophets. Okay. Joel 2.28, the prophecy fulfilled in Acts with the day of Pentecost says, it shall come to pass afterward, this is God declaring what he will do when the Spirit of God comes upon the people. I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters, they'll prophesy. Right? Your old men shall dream dreams. What is this sounding like? What is this sounding like? Sounds like what we just read in Numbers chapter 12. Your old men shall dream dreams. Your young men shall see visions. Okay, same three categories, just now it's anticipating what the Spirit of God will do in the New Testament. Okay, <clears throat> even on the male, female servants in those days, I will pour out my Spirit. So the Spirit of God, per the prophecy of Joel, per what we see on the day of Pentecost, the Spirit of God is linked to and evidenced by prophecy, dreams, visions. Prophecies, dreams, visions. Now, the prophesying on the part of the sons and daughters is not necessarily a completely different thing than dreams or visions. These are different categories of what I would call biblical prophecy. Okay? Because remember, to prophesy is to declare a message from God. So God can communicate a message, a prophetic word to a prophet or to a, an average individual he can communicate that through straightforward words, like with Moses, or through a dream, like with Joseph, or through visions, like Ezekiel. Okay, so we have these three categories that we can't deny. Okay, I don't think dreams and visions are not prophecy. He's talking about the sons and daughters prophesying as being commissioned by God to be the mouthpieces of God in the New Testament church which is what we see on the day of Pentecost, Acts 2.17. Peter quotes this. So the dreaming of dreams and the seeing of visions is not distinct or different from prophecy. It's under the same category, okay? But when I dream a dream or I see a vision, I'm not prophesying, right? Not yet, at least. That's different. <clears throat> prophesying is to declare the word of the Lord. To dream a dream or see a vision is to receive a prophetic word, but not yet give it. And if God ordains and, you know, 
leads you to, you give it, which is why I felt compelled to share the vision I had <clears throat> two weeks ago. Okay, Acts 2.17, we see this quoted, it shall, in the last days it shall be, God declares, because Peter's trying to make sense of what's happening, and the people are going, y'all drunk, and Peter's going, no, we're not, look how early it is, who is drunk this early? And they go, well, my grandma, well, your grandma's an exception, this is what God said would happen in Joel. Right? I'll pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young men will see visions. Your old men will dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants, I'll pour out my spirit. They shall prophesy. Now, <clears throat> what's interesting is they shall prophesy. Uh, <clears throat> wasn't that the end of verse 29? Probably because he's quoting the... Um, uh, Septuagint. Septuagint. Thank you. Thank you, me. High five. But Peter's clarifying what is happening when people are dreaming dreams from God or experiencing visions from God or sent to declare the word of God. Sons and daughters, this is your average, ordinary, you know, worker at Best Buy receiving a vision or a dream from God by the Spirit of God. They're sent to prophesy, and we'll get into what that looks like, okay? But I'm just trying to show you, <clears throat> in Israel, this is like the common folk receiving the ability to do something that used to be not normative. It was very special to prophesy, very special to see these visions and, and dream these dreams and um, be sent of God uh, to receive a message like that. And God's going to do it for all of his people. Job 33, we just read that. We talked about the dreams or visions in the night. Uh, we'll come, we're going to frequently come back to this throughout this series. Talk about the perception of the person. When a person sees a vision or dreams a dream. Uh, when they hear a word. What's, what happens between the reception and the actual understanding. And the perception of it. <clears throat> so Job 33 gives us those categories as well. <clears throat> Jeremiah 23, and I'm just, we'll just end here. Um, Jeremiah 23:32, he talks about how the there are prophets who are prophesying lying dreams. He doesn't deny the fact that dreams are a legitimate way through which God um, relays prophetic vision or insight or words. He doesn't deny that. He says the people you're relying on, they're they're prophesying lying dreams. They're leading the people astray into recklessness. Um, Jeremiah 29, 8 through 9 as well. Uh, if Jeremiah, Jeremiah could have just been like, guys, God doesn't talk through dreams prophetically. So to have a dream is one thing. To relay that dream is to be prophesying the dream. Jeremiah is saying, y'all are relying on false dreams that they're prophesying. Jeremiah 29, 8 through 9 <clears throat> says, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Don't let your prophets and your diviners who are among you deceive you. Don't listen to the dreams they dream. It's a lie. It's a lie. They're prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. God does not say, hey, I don't talk to people like that. Anytime someone says that, that's an obvious not from God. I had a dream. Liar. God does not talk to us like that. You get out of here, Charles. That's not what God does. He doesn't say, I don't talk in dreams. He says, they're telling you lying dreams. It's a lie. They're prophesying in my name. If you go to the book of Acts, just Acts, 
Okay, and I've never seen this until my last time reading Acts. Just the book of Acts. God speaks by his spirit. He speaks by angels or messengers, actual angelic beings. He speaks by the prophets. He speaks by visions and trances. He speaks by dreams. He speaks by his son. God is not this one-dimensional communicator. He's not. He's not a cookie-cutter God where it's like, it'll always. There are some things that will remain consistent across the board every time God speaks, for sure. And we'll talk about those things. Okay. We have answered a few questions. And again, we're just laying the foundation, man. Don't get antsy and impatient. We'll get to these other questions that, you know, we need to make sense of. But we've got to lay the foundation. What is prophecy? Is it always future-oriented? What's the purpose? What's the point? Does God always speak in the same way? Okay. Now, <clears throat> there is something I've never thought about. <clears throat> and again, if my voice cracks, I'm not 12. I'm sick is when a prophet receives a message, um, is that message always for someone else? Uh, because I have heard, uh, when it comes to like God speaking, um, and he gives a personal word just for you, that that already eliminates the possibility of it being God. Um, it's a silly argument, but so we have to ask the question, does God ever give <clears throat> a prophetic word to a prophet that is just for them? The answer is yes. I'll give you a few. And we could spend a long time on this. I don't think I need to. If I give you at least three or four scenarios, I think that should prove it. I don't know how much you want from me, man. <clears throat> First Kings chapter 17. Okay. Elijah, my guy, <laughs> wearing that fur coat, eating them eating them for uh, food from birds, ravens, unclean animal. But this is what Elijah sent to say to King Ahab. <clears throat> Neither dew nor rain will happen these years except by my word. Which is, by the way, a really cool thing to do. That would suck, but it'd be cool. The word of the Lord then came to Elijah. Here's what God says to Elijah. Hey, depart from here. Turn eastward. Hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. I want you to drink from the brook, and I've commanded the ravens to feed you there. So he went and did according to the word of the Lord. <clears throat> is this a prophetic word for everyone? No. Is it going to benefit a nation? No. Well, who does it benefit? If God's going to give a word, it's going to benefit more than just the individual, really. Where do we get these categories? Who taught you to think like that? Who told you that the way one of the ways to verify it's a true word from God is that it will eventually benefit someone else? Well, for sure. I think Elijah staying alive to actually bring down fire on the mountain in a battle against the gods, I think that'll benefit Israel, but keeping him alive matters. So this word <clears throat> that God gives to Elijah is just for him, but it does have ramifications on the people Elijah will minister to. So we can't be so one-dimensional about this and be like, well, when God speaks, it will never be just for you. Otherwise, what's the good of that? What's the good of that is that God's talking. That's the good relationally. Like I'm building up a relationship with God. I'm knowing him better. He's guiding me. And, and so there's this, this weird thing, man, where people go, eh, God will never give a word that's just for you. Really? First Kings 13. The man of God is sent to rebuke the king 
Uh, I don't think it's King Ahab at the time. It's uh, <clears throat> Jeroboam. Jeroboam sucks, man. He's, he's the worst. But there's a man of God sent to him uh, to be like, yo, the altar you're using for pagan stuff, y'all's bones are going to be burned on it. Oh, get him. Get that prophet. And the king goes, hey, <clears throat> get him. And his arm shrivels up. And then uh, the man, in, the guy, uh, Rehoboam, Jeroboam, rather, he goes, hey, pray that God will restore my arm. What a weird turn of events. Kill that guy. Ah, oh, shriveled arm. Hey, can you pray for me real quick? Why would I pray for you, you jerk? But he does. The man of God, the prophet, often, which you'll see in scripture, man of God and prophet are often used interchangeably, entreats the Lord and the king's hand was restored, became as before. The king said to the man of God, here's the prophet, come home with me and refresh yourself. I'll give you a reward. The man of God said to the king, if you give me half your house, I'll never go with you. I won't eat bread or drink water in this place. It was commanded me by the word of the Lord. Here's what God told the prophet that was sent to expose Jeroboam. God said this to him, to the prophet, don't eat bread or drink water or return, uh, <clears throat> nor return by the way that you came. So the prophet receives that word and he goes another way. God gives a prophetic word to this prophet that is just about him. It's just clear direction for him. Hey, by the way, when you go and expose Jeroboam, don't eat bread or drink water in that place. Probably because it's been dedicated to pagan rituals and such. And don't go the way you came. Probably because they could track you down. Go a different way. <clears throat> There's practical reasoning behind it, but it's a personal word. It's just for the prophet, okay? Just for the prophet. Jeremiah 7, 27. Um, God gives a word to Jeremiah. And he goes, hey, speak all these words to the people. They won't listen to you. Call to them, they won't answer to you. Say to them, this is the nation that didn't obey the voice of the Lord. And they didn't accept his discipline. Truth has perished, it is cut off from their lips. What does God tell Jeremiah? Well, he tells them what to say to the nation of Israel. But then he gives this commentary on what will happen. And God goes, by the way, Jeremiah, like this is just for you. <clears throat> when you share this word, they won't listen to you. Um, you're going to be calling to them. They're not going to be answering. They don't care. They're not going to be listening. That was a word just for Jeremiah. Just for Jeremiah. I know it's small, but it's there. Daniel 4. <clears throat> What's he going to do? Tell the people, I knew, you guys aren't going to listen. God told me. I think he does eventually say that, but the word is not just for them to be like, oh man, how did he know we wouldn't listen? It's for Jeremiah to know. It's okay when they don't listen. It's not a, it is a problem, but it's not, it doesn't mean God's word is failing. <clears throat> Daniel chapter 4, uh, he receives um, um, I think this is the one, if I'm not mistaken. The Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. His thoughts alarmed him. Ah, okay. This is when Daniel receives a dream. Or maybe it's not. Yeah. Hold on. I might have pasted the wrong. Might have pasted the wrong scripture. Let's dream my king. You, Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation. <clears throat> ah, okay. 
So Nebuchadnezzar sees a vision or a dream. He comes to Daniel and says, hey, tell me the interpretation. All the wise men of my kingdom can't, but I know you can, because I know the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. The king answered and said, hey, Daniel, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. I know it says Belshazzar. That's the name he was given in um, Babylon. Daniel, Belshazzar, says, uh, My Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven, uh, and it, it was visible to the end of the whole earth, the leaves that were beautiful and its fruit were abundant, in which was the food for all. You know, he's, he's relaying the, vi the dream that Nebuchadnezzar had, right? Under which the beasts of the field found shade and whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you. It, this is about you. So <clears throat> King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream, a vision from God that is about him. God gives Nebuchadnezzar a word that is about him. And Daniel comes and relays that information. You've grown and become strong. Your greatness and <clears throat> and uh, has grown and reaches to heaven. Your dominion reaches to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven saying, Chop it down! Destroy it, but leave the stump in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts of the field till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation of the king. O king. It's a decree from God most high. It's come upon my lord the king that you shall be driven from among men. And your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. So Daniel will go on to explain what you saw from God is about you. Now, of course, this is Daniel the prophet giving an interpretation to the king who had the vision. This is not a prophet receiving a direct word from God that only you know, affects them personally. But nonetheless, King Nebuchadnezzar receives a vision. That is about what? Well, it's not about anything beyond him. It's him and his kingdom and his empire that he's built. And he sees what will happen to him if he remains in pride. So God gives King Nebuchadnezzar a vision about himself. The interpretation is a personal one. Personal one. So can God speak to a person and it's only about that person? Sure. Why not? Why, well, why do we attach these weird descriptions and uh, categories to the idea of prophecy that isn't necessarily biblical? Where does it say that if God's going to speak to a prophet, it must be a word that is about someone else or benefits more than just the person? This is God warning King Nebuchadnezzar. Or in Jeremiah, God's letting Jeremiah know, by the way, they're not going to listen or God warning Elijah, hey, I want you to go here. <clears throat> or in 1 Kings 13, telling the prophet, hey, don't. It's, it's a, for the person. It's protective, okay? So, the last question under this category, I guess, the definition of prophecy is... Hey, does a prophet have prophecy on tap? The way that I can just go to a water source, flip that on and fill up my cup. Can a prophet do that with the gift of prophecy? Can they manipulate that? 
that ability or that skill, that God-given gift? Can they just turn it on and off when they want? When it comes to the gift of prophecy, I'll say this. The people of God or the prophet is always in control of whether or not they will seek God for confirmation, for a word, for help, for wisdom, or just for the presence of God. That is always in the control of a person. Okay, So I'm not asking, can a person ask God for it? You can always ask. You can always rely on Him. You can always seek direction and pursue Him. Whether or not God gives an answer and what that answer is, that's up to God, not the prophet. So the supernatural power of God is not on tap as if it's in my control and at my disposal completely. I can manipulate the gift of prophecy. If I'm a prophet, I can turn it on and off. It seems like God speaks and he makes these things available as he wills. So God speaks when he wants. He shares what he wants, when he wants, how he wants, with who he wants. So when you read scripture, um, it seems as though the word of the Lord comes to people as the Lord wills. And most times prophecy occurs, um, it'll say actually that the word of the Lord came. Whether it's, I mean, name any prophet in the Bible, you're probably going to come across with their life this phrase, the word of the Lord came. It, it won't say the prophet decided to grab, reach into the supernatural and grab a divine prophecy and pull it into the present. The word of the Lord comes at the will of God. When he wants, how he wants, to who he wants. The word of the Lord comes. Okay. In fact, 2 Peter 1.21 <clears throat> will make this idea very clear. That biblical prophecy, even for the prophet, is not on tap. They can ask the Lord for direction. They can seek God. They can, they can pursue him. They can go, hey, Lord, we're really needing counsel. And they can look to him. What God does in response is not up to the prophet. But the prophet is called to have faith. 2 Peter 1 says, no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. In other words, the prophet Jeremiah is not sitting at home one day going like, I think I want to be a prophet. And I want God to talk now and tell me something. God, you're going to talk to me now and give me a prophetic word. Any prophecy you see in scripture, it, will, it didn't start or originate with the will of a person. Yeah, well, God, but not the, with the will of a created being like humans. It started with God. Men spoke from God as they were carried. This is not mindless. This is not without their understanding or without their control and, and without their participation. This is not to the neglect of their personality and, and different traits and gifts. This is as they're carried. Kind of like Jesus talks about how the Spirit of God is like wind. The wind blows where it wants. Well, the prophets are carried and the word of God, the word of God comes to them kind of like the wind. They're just carried along by the spirit. Like, oh, God's speaking. Let me listen. God's calling me to talk. Let me, let me say this. So biblical prophecy is not on tap in that sense where a person can just press a button as a prophet and be like, oh, word from the Lord, word from the Lord, word from the Lord. You've reached your max daily limit. No, 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 no. That's not how it works. The Lord ultimately decides if, and when he speaks, he does. So Daniel was a prophet, and he wasn't automatically given the dream and the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Uh, Daniel had to pray and ask God for it. 
They had to seek God in order to find what God made available through his seeking. So it wasn't just given to him because he was a prophet. In other words, when you read Daniel chapter 2, verse 17 through 19, you have Daniel in Babylon. King Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. He's freaking out. He's saying, if no one can figure out what this means, I'm going to kill all the enchanters and all the, the different you know, seers in my kingdom. I'm going to kill you all. Daniel goes, oh, hey, take it easy there, hangry. Daniel goes to his house, makes the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, Azariah, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. And he told them, hey, let's seek mercy from the God of heaven about this mystery, the dream Nebuchadnezzar had. So that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men of Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed. Then the mystery was revealed. How? Well, in a vision of the night. So Daniel sees, as a gift from God, as an answer to his prayer, Daniel sees the understanding of, of, of Nebuchadnezzar's dream. He sees the dream. He sees what it means. God reveals to him um, the meaning in a vision in the night. But Daniel and his friends chose to pray for mercy. Said, God, have mercy on us, please. Show us the interpretation of the dream. And King Nebi, King Nebi was also like, hey, not only do I want you to tell me what my dream means, I want to know you're legit. Tell me what I dreamed. And so Daniel and his friends seek God and go, Lord, show us what the dream even was. It didn't come to him automatically where he's like, I'm a prophet. It'll come to me. He sought the Lord. He asked. And God chose to answer. And then this is what Daniel says to um, the king. The king declared to Daniel, are you able to make known to me the dream? And its interpretation, Daniel goes, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show you the mystery. But there is a God who reveals mysteries in heaven. And he's made known to King Nebi what will be in the latter days. And your dream and the visions of your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, as you lay in bed came thoughts of what would be after this. And he who reveals mysteries made known to you what it will be. In other words, King Nebuchadnezzar sitting on the bed like we do as we're falling asleep, stressing about what our life will look like, anxious, freaking out, Going, what is it going to be after this? God shows him and answers that des desire, which is cool. And uh, God makes known the mystery in a dream. <clears throat> and then it's revealed to Daniel. As for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom I have more than all the living. In other words, Daniel's saying, I don't know what your dream means because I'm smart. I don't know what your dream means because I am wise and I have the gift of prophecy and I am an interpreter of dreams. But in order that the interpretation may be made known to the king, like that's why God revealed the mystery. Not because of anything about me, but because he wanted to show you the thoughts of your mind. And he's using me to do it. So when it comes to the gift of prophecy or being a prophet, no. You, you don't just turn on prophecy and then turn it off when you're done using it. You don't reach a daily limit where it's like eight prophecies left, nine prophecies left. It's the, whether you're a prophet or not, whether you have the gift of prophecy or not, it doesn't eliminate the need to seek God for an answer, for interpretation, for a vision. The word of God comes when it comes. 
just like the wind. I don't oversee that process. I can come to God and pray. I can seek Him, but I'm not overseeing that process. Okay? Do I have enough time for this? One, two, three, four, five. One, two, three, four. Yeah, I think we could do it. I'd pop my ears or I'm about to go crazy. Okay. Talked about prophecy and the definition. Now let's talk logistically. This is These are the questions people don't know to ask. Um, and so I'm going to ask them for you. So hopefully you can have clarity on this. The question becomes the way God delivers messages to prophets. The logistics, the methodology. What does that look like? For instance... When God speaks, is there always 100% clarity and assurance that it's God speaking? In other words, when a prophet receives a word from the Lord, do they always know that it's God speaking? Or are there times where even a prophet will receive a word, a vision, a dream, and they're not sure if it's God? Because one of the misconceptions and misunderstandings with prophecy, I think, is that, well, if God's going to speak, speak, you're going to absolutely know it. Is that true in all reality and practice when we're just living our lives as believers? Do I always recognize the voice of God? Do I always know when Scripture is being communicated? Do I always, even when it comes to like the unbeliever who's sitting in a pew, and going, I don't believe any of this garbage. God is speaking through the teacher or shepherd. God is speaking. They don't know it. They don't believe it. So, already, I think you can guess my answer. But let me back it up with scripture. I'm not just going to tell you. Because I'm not saying there's any issue on God's end. That's not what I'm saying. Don't put words in my mouth. I'm not saying, you know, God, when he talks... He's kind of hiding in the shadows being like, let's see if they know it was me. He's not ding-dong ditching his people, right? He's not leaving a message at the door of our mind and then backing up and being like, Ooh, let's see if they guess it. <clears throat> but what I'm saying is, is there a gap between God speaking and us recognizing it's him? And does that gap sometimes get closed? Where no, a prophet or someone who's being talked to by God doesn't know it's God. 1 Samuel chapter 3 is a classic example. 1 Samuel 3, one of the greatest prophets. The boy Samuel, right, is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Guess what? The word of the Lord was rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. Okay, so remember how I said the word of the Lord given to prophets is not always this whispering in an ear the way um the author's communicating the word of the lord here is in a vision okay so he's setting you up to know what's about to happen you're like why would he say that is god about to give a vision at that time eli whose eyesight had begun to grow dim so that he couldn't see was lying down in his place so we have eli the high priest not a stand-up guy his kids Terrible people. 
the lamp of God had not yet gone out. Samuel was lying down in the temple of the Lord where the ark of God was. So we're in Shiloh where the actual, well, the functional house of God is. It's not a temple. It's more like a makeshift tabernacle. And uh, it's just been in Shiloh for a while. So this is where Eli is. This is where Samuel, who's called a young boy, um, Samuel the boy was ministering. We don't know how old he is. I mean, you're talking probably anywhere between, uh, at most, 18. But at that time, uh, the Lord called to Samuel. And Samuel goes, here I am. And he ran to Eli. He thought Eli, the high priest, was talking to him. And he goes, here I am. You called me. He goes, I didn't call you. <laughs> Go to bed. Which is like, oh, parents, can you, you can relate to this. So he went and he lay down. And the Lord called again. Samuel. Now, at this point, you and I go, if God is going to clearly communicate, uh, then Samuel would know it's the Lord. So is the issue with God or is the issue with Samuel's discernment of God's voice? Because remember, the voice of the Lord, the word of the Lord, the vision of God wasn't frequent in those days. Samuel arose, went to Eli and said, here I am, you called me. But he said, I didn't call my son, go lay down again. Now, Samuel didn't yet know the Lord. Boom, right there. Samuel did not yet know the Lord. And the word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. Okay. What that means, it's a rabbit hole. Just think, an actual vision of, I would say, Jesus pre-incarnate. A Christophany. Okay, when the word of the Lord comes... Sometimes it's actually Jesus. But the Lord called Samuel again, third time. And he rose and went to Eli and said, Here I am, you called me. Eli perceived the Lord was calling the boy. Therefore Eli said, Samuel, go lay down. If he calls you again, say, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. So Samuel went and lay down in his place. The Lord came and stood calling as at other times, Samuel, Samuel. And this time, Samuel is told by Eli, hey, when, when, when the voice comes again, say, Lord, your servant is listening. So Samuel knows, speak for your servant hears. And then God will go on to tell Samuel about something that's going to happen. The word of the Lord comes to Samuel. It takes three times for Samuel <clears throat> to know it's God. Why? He's unfamiliar with his voice. It can't be any clearer. He did not yet know the Lord. The word of the Lord had not yet been revealed to him. The word of the Lord and visions were not frequent. Samuel, the boy, however old he is, is about to be anointed and called as prophet. But he doesn't yet know the voice of God. So three times, did God miss and mess up? Was this an issue with God? Where it's like, God, you can make yourself a little clearer and go, hey, it's me. Well, it seems like God is doing a fantastic job. Of doing what he knows Samuel needs to have happen. Samuel's unfamiliar with the voice of God, with the actual presence and character of God in terms of intimacy and, and, and relationship. The third time, though, he gets it. I'm sorry, the fourth time he gets it. He hears the voice of God because Eli perceived it was God calling him. So, so far, 
the answer is no. Even the prophet, who is talked to directly by God, does not always know it's God speaking. And again, the issue is with the receiver, with the one who's receiving the word or the message. Now, I told you we'd go to Job 33 quite a bit. Here's my proof. God speaks in one way. And people are like, yes, I told you, he just speaks one way. And in two. Ah, man. Even though man does not perceive it. Will God sometimes speak even though he knows? The people who the message is for won't perceive it. Is it a waste of God's effort and energy? Doesn't seem like it. But are there times where God does speak in one way, in two, and the person, the receiver, doesn't perceive it's the voice of God, doesn't recognize, like Samuel, the voice of God, maybe because they're unfamiliar, maybe because they're distracted, maybe because they're hard-hearted. Yeah, sure seems like it. Uh, how about Jeremiah 32? I mean, I could just give you one, and you'd be like, you know what, I guess we don't always know when God speaks, like definitively and 100% assurance. And then the question we have to ask is, well, why? And I, my, my very simple answer would be humility and intimacy. Because I do think we grow in our recognition of God's voice. Okay? I do believe that. Discernment is trained. Familiarity is bred. Like you grow in familiarity with God. You learn to recognize his voice, his promptings. Samuel, not familiar. Job makes it clear. Well, at least I forget who's talking in Job. One of the friends that you actually should listen to. Says, Man doesn't perceive when God speaks sometimes. Jeremiah 32. Watch this. The word of the Lord came to me. Right here. Okay, who's God talking to? Jeremiah, one of the greatest prophets to ever live. If anyone's going to recognize the voice of God, it's going to be Jeremiah. Okay, And the word of the Lord says this, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, both great names if you're going to have a kid soon, your uncle will come to you and he will say, Buy my field that is at Anathoth. God's letting Jeremiah know what's going to happen. For the right of redemption by purchase is yours, Jeremiah. He's saying, your uncle's going to come, okay? Or Hanamel, the son of your uncle, is going to come and say, hey, I have a field at Anathoth. It's yours by right of redemption to purchase it. And then guess what? We don't know how long the gap is between God's word and when it actually happens. But then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard. Now you can say, well, the then right after indicates it was immediately. I don't, I don't think we can insinuate that. Because a lot of the times in narrative, the then can note a long time. <laughs> you know, like years after, and then it just kind of jumps to it. And then, that, and then it happened. And you're like, well, what about the five years before? It doesn't matter. Just the point that it happened. So this could be, I don't know, any reasonable amount of time. It doesn't have to be immediately. Then Hanamel, my cousin, came to me in the court of the guard in accordance with the word of the Lord. Okay? 
and said, Hey, buy my field at Anathoth in the land of Benjamin, because the right of possession and the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Watch this interesting statement. <clears throat> I like that Remnant Radio pointed this out. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. This you telling me, Jeremiah, you, you didn't know if it was really God who said that yet? And now the confirmation comes and your cousin does what God says and you go, oh. Now I know that this was actually what God said. Or is Jeremiah saying, my cousin came and said to me something. And I said, hmm, that sounds like what God said. That's the word of the Lord. I don't think that's what's happening. Because that seems unnecessarily redundant. Jeremiah 6 or 32.6, says the word of the Lord comes, tells Jeremiah what will happen. Then it happens, and Jeremiah goes, then I knew this was the word of the Lord. It, another translation will say, then I knew it was the Lord who spoke with me. So the, the question then becomes, did Jeremiah not definitively know that the message he received was really from God? Like, was he, was he really discerning? Like, is this me? Is this my imagination? Is this God? There seems to be a lack of clarity. A lack of, I'm not entirely sure if this idea I have that my uncle's, that my cousin's going to come to me and he's going to tell me to buy his field. I'm not sure that's from God. Is Jeremiah wrestling here? And then it happens and he goes, oh, that was God. That was God. That seems to be what's happening. Then I knew this was the word of the Lord. He didn't know that was the word of the Lord prior to it actually happening. There wasn't this absolute clarity that this is God speaking. There was a hesitancy. What do you do with that? I think it lends credence to the idea that when God speaks... Even to a prophet, it's not always on the part of the prophet. They don't always for sure know it is God indeed speaking. There's some potential wrestling going on. Is it? How do I know? What if it's me? Did I have bad pizza? What's going on? Second Samuel 7. Okay. And I'm sure some of you have never thought to ask this, these kinds of questions, right? You're just going, I just assume that when God spoke, especially to a prophet, they would go, that is absolutely God, no doubt about it. Sometimes, maybe that's the case. Other times, maybe God backs off a bit and, and lets that word kind of stew in the heart of his, the prophet so that relationship develops because God is not some robotic God where it's like hear a word go and do it relationship is developing intimacy is being had familiarity is being bred Jeremiah and every other prophet seems to learn how to recognize and discern the voice of God progressively it doesn't seem like God drops this perfect discernment in the lap of the prophet where they go now I will never miss the voice of God and I'll always know when he's speaking with absolute certainty that doesn't seem to be what happens in fact the opposite seems to be happening which is that even a prophet like Jeremiah isn't always sure 
if it's indeed God speaking. There's that tension. There's that leaning into and pursuing God for clarity, which keeps the prophet humble, doesn't it? 2 Samuel 7, David decides, I want to build a house for God. And Nathan the prophet, right here, Nathan the prophet, it's pretty clear. Who is he? He's a prophet. <laughs> he says, go and do all that is in your heart. The Lord is with you. Right? So David goes, I really want to build a house for God. Nathan, the prophet, who hears from God directly, goes, the Lord is with you. Did he think he heard something from God? Did God actually say that? Let's find out. That same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, okay, thus says the Lord, would you build me a house to dwell in? I haven't lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day. I've been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God's not complaining. He's stating something. In all the places where I've moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? Why have you not built me a house? Come on, guys. I'm tired. I need a place to rest my feet. God never did that. But then God will go on to say all that he's going to do for David. Now, this account of the event doesn't include what 2 Chronicles 28 has, okay? So, um, or is it 1 Chronicles 28? Might it be 1 Chronicles? Okay. David assembles at Jerusalem, okay? These are the Chronicles of the Kings. <clears throat> He's got the officials, the tribes, the division, all the kings and all the people, okay? Everyone is there. King David rises to his feet and says, Hey, everybody, I had this great idea. I had it in my heart to build a house of rest for the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. Okay? And for the footstool of our God. I made preparations for building it. So David's already like, mm, I'm going forward. I think this is God. I'm going to start making preparations. I'm going to start doing Thank you, Joshua. Good seeing you, brother. I'm going to make the preparations to do it. But God said to me, you may not build a house for my name. You are a man of war and have shed blood. Now, first, second Samuel doesn't account that statement because David is looking back in hindsight. Yet the Lord God of Israel chose me and he'll go on to talk about all that God has done for him. The point is. God did say through the prophet Nathan, after Nathan already said, God is with you, go build a house, he'll bless it. Nathan goes home, gets a word from God, and God goes, actually, tell David um, all this. Do I need a house? Did I ever ask for a house? And what Second Chronicles or what First Chronicles, um, thank you, Scott, for that amazing gift. Really, thank you. That's what supports this ministry. If you guys didn't know, like this is completely crowdfunded. Thank you. But what we don't see accounted for in Second Samuel um, is accounted for in First Chronicles. When David stands up and he goes, God said, I can't build a house for his name. 
because I'm a man of war and I've shed blood. Like that's up. That's that's what Solomon's going to do. I, I don't get to do that. David desired to build a house for God. He goes, I'm going to do it. Nathan the prophet goes, God is with you. And then David gets a word from Nathan the prophet later and goes, actually, God is not with you. You can't build a house for his name. You're a man of war. You make the preparations. You bring the supply. And God is going to use Solomon to do that, not you. You get to have your son do that. So what is very obvious is that the prophet Nathan got it wrong. Either he misheard God and he really had an impression or a word and went, God is with you, right? Or he misheard God and God didn't say that. Or Nathan didn't actually check in with God and he just said, God is with you. Either way, he got it wrong. He didn't correctly hear the voice of God. So God did not say, I'm with you, build the house. In fact, God had to correct the prophet Nathan and go, actually, I'm not with him. That's for Solomon. He's a man of war. He can't build my house. Solomon will. What is plainly obvious is that Nathan did not recognize the voice or the word of God appropriately or correctly. He either spoke uh, a little too hastily, either he misrepresented God or put words in God's mouth and was confused, or he really did mishear God and think God said this when he didn't. Either way, there's a lack of recognizing God's voice in that situation. And the prophet Nathan did get it wrong. And God has to correct him. So not only do we, yes, have a category for when God speaks to a prophet, it's not always absolutely crystal clear and obvious that it's God. It's not. That's, that's not what's always happening. With Samuel, with Jeremiah, with the prophet Nathan, Job talks about it. We, we don't see that as being universally true all the time. Okay? But there's a second category you and I have to now deal with. I opened up the can of worms and it's this, that a prophet is not someone who always gets it right. The prophet Nathan is not stoned after this. David doesn't quote Deuteronomy and Leviticus and go, sorry, Nathan, we got to kill you now because you got it wrong. You didn't say what God actually said. You misheard him, you misrepresented him, you put words, whatever it was, maybe you just messed up. Either way, you got a false word from God, we got to kill you now. David doesn't do that. Nathan's alive well and he just corrects him and things are great. Nathan goes on to be the prophet. So, guess what? He said, the Lord is with you. Didn't he? He said, the Lord is with you. Right there. The Lord is with you. In what? Building the house. What's Nathan saying? That the Lord is behind your decision to build the house. Was he? Second Chronicles 28 says no. He was not. So, uh, someone said in the comments, he didn't say the Lord. He just said, but he did. Nathan didn't make this a personal word and go, you know what? That's a good idea. Nathan goes and attaches God's name to it. The Lord is with you.
So you can work around this all you want and you can try and jump around it. Um, but he does say the Lord is with you. He's putting this on God, the prophet Nathan. And I'm not trying to like smear his name through the mud. The point is, even though he gets it wrong and messes up, he's still a prophet. <clears throat> Guess what? The Lord was not with him in his endeavor to build the house. He's not saying a general, for some people who are like, uh, you know, Nathan's just saying the Lord is with you generally. This is a response to David's desire to build a house for God. This is not Nathan being like, David's not going, hey, I want to build a house for God. Nathan's like, the Lord is with you in a general sense, though, not in this endeavor. Nathan is responding to this desire to build an actual house for God. And he said, the Lord is with you. The Lord was not with him in that. He actually didn't want David to do that. He wanted David to make preparations for it, not to go and build it. So God has to correct that. It is what it is. It is what it is. Even a prophet who hears from God doesn't perfectly always get it right. And you have to wrestle with that and figure out logistically how far that goes. Okay, I'll tell you what. In Genesis 41, Pharaoh has a dream. Okay? We know this. Um, he sees the fat cows, and then he sees skinny cows, and then he sees fat husks, then he sees, um, you know, small husks. The small husks eat the big husks. The small cows eat the big cows. Pharaoh has some weird dreams, man. And um, if you read verse 12, this is what the cupbearer, I believe is the cupbearer. The cupbearer is restored to his position next to Pharaoh. Um, and he goes, a young Hebrew was there with us in prison because the cupbearer used to be in prison. He interpreted our dreams, giving an interpretation to each man according to his dreams. Now, when we get to episode five in this series, we'll talk about dreams, okay? And we'll, we'll reference this again. So I just want to touch on this real fast. That Pharaoh, when he received a dream, now again, Pharaoh's not a prophet, so that's why I saved this for last. But Pharaoh, when he received a dream, King Nebuchadnezzar, when he received dreams, <clears throat> he, they didn't know that it was from God. They just felt uneasy about the dreams. And in that culture, there was a supernatural element to the dream state, right? So to be in a dream state, to, to, there was something supernatural about that. So they would pay attention to dreams. That's why they had dream interpreters and, and astrologers and, and uh, the wise men of Babylon and the wise men of Egypt. They would come to kind of bring interpretation and awareness and clarity to these things. But Pharaoh and Nebuchadnezzar, they don't go, hey, God is speaking, but God was. It wasn't apparent, it wasn't clear, it wasn't obvious that God was speaking to them. They just thought, I, have an un I had an uneasy dream, I need someone to help me. Joseph steps into Pharaoh and goes, well, God is telling you this. Or Daniel steps into King Nebuchadnezzar and goes, God is telling you this. And they tell them, God is talking to you. The Almighty, the true God of the heavens who made the earth and all that's in it. Yeah, he's talking to you. And it wasn't apparently... Uh, clear when they had the dreams as opposed to Abimelech Abimelech uh, Abimelech takes Abraham's uh, wife not against his will but Abraham you know just says ah oh, she's my sister and Sarah's like 
And then Abimelech kind of takes her in. And then he has a dream that night and God warns him, hey, you're a dead man walking if you keep her in your house because Abram's her husband. She's married, you know, and he knows it's God speaking. So God can make himself known in dreams and say, hey, by the way, it's me. But with Pharaoh and with Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't make himself known like that. So the point is that they would... <clears throat> Pharaoh, um, King Nebuchadnezzar, um, God uses Daniel and Joseph to bring awareness to the true God of Israel through that. And this elevates and exalts the God of Israel <clears throat> in the mind of Pharaoh and, and King Nebuchadnezzar. Okay, so it is about exalting his name in the earth. It is about advancing his kingdom. And he'll, God is very strategic about uh, placing his people where they will uh, reveal him best. And Joseph reveals the God of Israel to Pharaoh. Uh, Daniel reveals the God of Israel to, to King Nebuchadnezzar in Babylon. But the point is, <clears throat> the reason God doesn't make it clear that it's him is so that he can place his people right there to supply, and then it confirms that this is the true and living God. God is all about confirmation and validating his, or exalting his own name. But again, um, the point still stands that when God gives a prophetic word, even to the prophets, uh, Samuel didn't know it was the voice of God after three times. Uh, Job says, even if God speaks her one way or two way, man doesn't perceive it. There's sometimes we don't perceive it. Uh, Jer Jeremiah, you know, he said, I, I didn't even know. Um, then I knew it was the Lord who spoke with me. Or then I, then I knew it was the word of the Lord. Um, and then in second Samuel seven, Nathan does, uh, whether he, he, he heard something or whether he just jumped the gun and said, God is with you either way. For those that are, that don't like this, I'm just trying to give you these very clear examples that you can't get around. And again, we're not saying that God is, uh, has an issue with communication. No, there's an issue with reception on our end and God knowingly works with us anyway. Like, he knows that. God's not unaware. Like, let me perfectly speak. What? They didn't hear or recognize me? What the heck? Let me take you to the New Testament. This is not necessarily a prophetic example. This is just, like, just a practical example. Okay? Uh, John chapter 12, verse 28. Uh, Jesus says, Father, glorify your name. And he doesn't say that in his, in his thoughts or in his mind or in a prayer quietly. He says aloud, Father, glorify your name. Okay. And then a voice comes from heaven and it says, I have glorified it. I will glorify it again. The crowd that stood there and heard it, what they hear? They heard the voice of God, didn't they? Said that it had thundered. So some of the crowd is going, what was that thunder? Think of Mount Sinai when Israel's standing at the base and then God is, descends on Mount Sinai in fire, a cloud of smoke and lightning and thunder, all that, okay? That's the idea. But they interpret the voice of God as thunder. Others say an angel spoke to him. Wow. Whoa. And Jesus goes, ah, this voice has come for your sake, not mine. This was a validating voice. This was God speaking from heaven, not just at the Mount of Transfiguration, not just at the baptism, but here again saying, 
let me validate my son in the sight of these people. Some of the crowd go, an angel talked to him. Others of them go, it's thunder. So I'm just saying, if God is going to uh, make it very crystal clear, this is me, he could. The question we have to ask is, well, why sometimes does he, does he not? And I already told you, I think for the sake of humility, for the sake of dependency, and for the sake of intimacy and friendship, those being prioritized above my ability to just pull prophetic words out of thin air. It, it, it goes beyond that. It's about relationship and, and walking with him and knowing him and growing in relationship with him. So that's why sometimes the message comes without um, uh, information about the sender. You know, I'll say it like that. Or a package arrives in the mail that has no name on it. And we go, hmm, let me open this. Based on the contents, who would I say this is from? It trains our discernment. It keeps us dependent on him. It keeps us humble. All these different things. That's why I think Samuel didn't recognize the voice of God initially. God is growing his discernment as he's even talking to him. Growing his ability to recognize his voice. That's why the third time, Eli goes, you know what? I think it's God. Um, and also, it lets Eli know that he really did hear from God. Because Samuel could have been like, I heard from God. But the fact that he kept going back to Eli brings Eli into the equation so that Eli knows whatever Samuel is going to tell him is most definitely from God. Because he's come here three times. So <clears throat> the whole, I think this is why people don't like the fact that God speaks in riddles, like he says in Deuteronomy. Um, because they have this caricature of God that says, when God speaks to us, I will absolutely know it's him. Take that in just your everyday way of life. Do you always recognize when God is prompting or leading or, or you know, doing something around you? Do you always perceive that? Do you always recognize his words when he's actually declaring um, something in scripture? Or I'll, or I'll say it like this. We can even bring it down to the, the level of scripture and say, um, does everyone who reads the Bible always perfectly understand every single layer and complexity and detail that goes into that passage. Or you can even just say, does every pastor understand perfectly the passage they're communicating? Or do some pastors get it wrong? Do some teachers get it wrong? And so if there's that ability to even misinterpret uh, the word of God, I would say how much more is there the potential to miss, to miss the voice of God or to um, mishear and not recognize when he's speaking? Like Samuel, like Job says, man does not perceive it. Like that should have been the end, like end all debate verse right there. This one, look, God speaks in one way, in two, even though man doesn't perceive it. So other times when God speaks and man doesn't recognize or perceive it's him. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> That's why I brought up all these examples. But people will always battle with scripture because they, they've been taught uh, an, an understanding of God that they force scripture into. And they're like, well, I was told God does this, so now I need to fit every passage into this and make it say this. I'm just like, well, how about this? Okay. Here's another question we'll ask. Does God always reveal a clear time frame for a prophetic word he gives to a prophet? Or is it sometimes general? Sometimes he does give a specific and clear time frame. And he can be as detailed and as clear as he wants. 
the clarity of the details doesn't determine uh, our ability to recognize the voice of God. In other words, based on the amount of details God shares, that shows how clear and thorough he is. No, God is clear, very clear, very understandable and discernible, regardless of how many details he gives. You can learn to recognize his voice and walk with him long enough to recognize his character and reinforce what you're hearing with scripture. You can filter what you hear or discern through the word of God. You got to know the scripture. So yes, sometimes God does give a clear time frame. First uh, Kings chapter 20, verse 13. Uh, an example, I don't think I have to really spend much time on this. First Kings chapter 20, verse 13, a prophet comes to Ahab, king of Israel. He says, have you seen this great multitude? I'll give it into your hand this day. Like King Ahab, today, I'm going to make this happen. <clears throat> give you victory. A uh, prophet comes near to the king again, a different prophet, I believe, King Ahab. And he goes, strengthen yourself and consider what you've done in the spring. The king of Syria will come up against you. So he gives him a clear like, hey, in the spring, just so you know, that's more general than today. <clears throat> so that's why I said there's even generality with, within the time frames God attaches to words. It's not always the same amount of clarity. It's not always like down to the minute, down to the second. Sometimes it's uh, down to the month. Sometimes it's down to the year. Sometimes it's down to the the week. Elijah the Tishbite goes, hey, there won't be uh, rain for three years or these years except by my word. Um, and the word of the Lord came. You said, yeah. I thought he said three. That's not the one, man. <clears throat> Acts eleven twenty eight is more of a general word. The prophet Agabus stands up by the spirit and goes, hey, there's going to be a great famine over all the world. Um, this took place in the days of Claudius. So they know it's coming up soon. That's why they take action. Uh, Daniel 4.33. And again, the the 3.5 years no rain. Ah, yeah, Grogu, I, I know that. But I thought he said it to King Ahab. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Uh, he doesn't tell him how long. But he knows how long. That's the interesting thing. Elijah knew. He actually prayed. James tells us Elijah prayed that it wouldn't uh, rain for three and a half years. That's interesting. It's a very weird thing to pray, but it's for a purpose. It's to turn the people of Israel back to the God of Israel. Um, and so Elijah prays that. He seems to know how long it's going to last. He doesn't tell Ahab the amount of time. Um, so even for the prophet, sometimes there's details the prophet knows that the receivers of the message don't need to know. He said it in an interpretive dance. That's what he did. Daniel 4.33, <clears throat> immediately the word was fulfilled against King Nebuchadnezzar uh, when he has a dream and Daniel goes, look, you're about to be humbled big time, boy. And then immediately that word is fulfilled. That's more of an accomplishment as opposed to here's when it will happen. Uh, sometimes God doesn't give a time frame when he gives a prophetic word. First Kings 13, behold, a man of God came to Judah by the word of the Lord. He rose to Jeroboam, standing by the altar, making all, uh, offerings to false gods. And the man cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, Altar, altar, thus says the Lord, a son shall be born to the house of David. Josiah, here's his name, here's who he is, will come from David and he will sacrifice on you, the priests of the high places who make offerings on you, and human bones shall be burned on you. And he gave a sign the same day to validate that. 
he doesn't give any clear time frame. He just goes, a son will come from David. His name will be Josiah. It'll happen. Just general. Just general. No, no details in terms of time. 1 Kings 20, 42. Um, I believe this is, uh, yeah, King Ahab, a prophet, comes to King Ahab. The fact that God lasted so long with King Ahab is beyond me, man. Thus says the Lord, because you've let go out of your hand the man who I devoted to destruction, therefore your life shall be for his life, and your people for his people. And the king of Israel went to his house, vexed and sullen, and came to Samaria. The prophet essentially goes, hey, uh, King Ahab, you done messed up. You done messed up, hey, Aaron, and uh, you're going to die. He doesn't say when, he doesn't say uh, necessarily how, just goes, you're going to die. 1 Samuel 3.12, when Samuel receives the first prophecy, he says, on that day, <clears throat> God's telling um, Samuel what's going to happen to the house of Eli. I'll fulfill against Eli all I've spoken concerning his house from beginning to end. Um, and he says what he'll do to the house of Eli. But um, no details. No time. No time. So... We can't say, well, if there's no time from attached, it can't be a word from God. That's a dumb thing to say. Like, lovingly, that's a dumb thing to say because God gives very general words sometimes. And he gives the amount of details he wants. The amount of details in a prophetic word is not always an indication of whether or not it's from God. So I don't, it's not like a prophetic word has to meet this criteria. It has to be at least seven details. God is very general sometimes. Sometimes God shares just what you need to know. Sometimes a little more than you need to know. Sometimes the day, down to the week, down to the month. This is God sharing what he wants, when he wants, how he wants. For us to put all these restrictions on him and go, well, if God's going to speak, it'll look like this, is to just be silly, man. <laughs> Does God always give the meaning or the purpose of a prophetic vision? That's a good question to ask. When a prophet receives a vision... A word, a riddle, a dream, uh, some kind of prophetic insight. Does God always give the understanding and the meaning of that vision or word? Or does it sometimes come later or at all? Um, I'll tell you what. I'll ask you like this. And I think now you can understand why I'm going to answer it like this. Does a prophet always understand the full scope of what they're saying or seeing in a vision or dreaming in a dream. And I think you and I both know we prophesy in part. No, the prophets don't have a full scope of what they're saying. The prophets long to look into the things that we now know. Angels long to. So no, they didn't. The question then becomes, because this is why, this is why I bring it up. People will talk about prophecy and the gift or the prophetic words and the way prophets operate. And they'll go, well, you know, God never speaks without purpose. So when God gives a, a vision or a word, you will understand it immediately when you see it, when you hear it, if it's from God. And I go, well, if that's true, then you have a lot of issues with scripture. Because there's a lot of prophets and instances where that did not happen. Peter, in the vision uh, he has of the sheep or the animals. Um, Daniel, when he receives dreams and he's not sure what's happening. Uh, Job, 33, 14, I'll quote it again. Isaiah, Daniel again. Uh, some of the uh, Midianites in Judges when they're going against Gideon. One has a dream, the other interprets. 
or Joseph's dreams. He has no idea of the full length of what's going on. Pharaoh's dreams, King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. I mean, the list goes on and on. So sometimes God does give the immediate interpretation and, and, and understanding of a vision or a word. Sometimes he does. Um, but I don't think it becomes this filter through which we determine if God is speaking. Where we go, well, you know, if God's going to speak, he's not going to leave you in the dark. And you're wondering, what does this mean? That's what happened to me, bro. Like I had a vision two, two weeks ago and I shared it. And people are messaging me going, if you have to ask what it means, it can't be from God. Let me show you why that's a, not a logical way of thinking or a biblical way of seeing prophecy. Okay, lovingly. Let me show you why. Jeremiah 1, 13 through 14. God gives the immediate interpretation to Jeremiah. The word of the Lord comes to Jeremiah a second time. He goes, what do you see? Jeremiah goes, I see a boiling pot facing from the north. And I'm sure he has no idea what's going on. Then the Lord said, and he explains what he's seeing. Out of the north, disaster shall be let loose upon all the inhabitants of the land. For behold, I'm calling all the tribes of the kingdoms of the north, declares the Lord. And they shall come, every one shall set his throne at the entrance of the gates of Jerusalem. Against its walls all around and all the cities of Judah. And I'll declare my judgments against them for all their evil and forsaking me. And then he goes on to explain what Jeremiah needs to do. But the point is, God doesn't start with that explanation. God doesn't start with the meaning. He shows Jeremiah a picture which will represent what he's about to tell him. Okay? So first, God shows him a general picture. And Jeremiah is looking at a boiling pot facing from the north. All of that is in that picture. All of what God just said is in that vision. Well, Jeremiah on his own wouldn't have concluded that. The Lord had to clarify. And it came immediately for sure. But that, cl that clarification and that interpretation of a vision, of a dream, of a prophetic word, it's not always immediate. <clears throat> Let me take you to 1 Peter 1.10. Because that's one of the underlying assumptions that people have about prophecy and the way God engages his prophets. Is that if he's going to speak they're going to immediately know what they're looking at and understand it. Bro, that's a silly way to think. You're putting limits and caps that Scripture doesn't actually give us. So 1 Peter 1.10 says, Concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours searched and inquired carefully. What were they inquiring? Well, what person or time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the subsequent glories. So you have prophets in the Old Testament who are prophesying of the sufferings of Jesus. They're prophesying of the glory of Jesus. They're prophesying that a Messiah is coming, but the details of the person, the details of his work and his atonement and his resurrection, they don't all have equal vision of the full scope of the mystery. They don't. They all have different angles of the same picture, right? They all have different pieces of the same puzzle, and they're inquiring. They're inquiring what it'll be like, but guess what? It was revealed to them that they were serving not themselves, but you. In the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, things into which angels long to look. Long to look. Angels long to understand the mystery that we now see, and now it's revealed through the church. 
And the prophets inquired carefully, trying to get the details, but they were only able to see what God allowed them to see. Acts chapter 1, or uh, sorry, 11, um, sorry, 10, verse 9. I'm not going to get into the details, okay? But Acts 10, verse 9, Peter's on the housetop. He just, I think he's in a city where he healed a woman named Tabitha. Or Tabatha. Uh, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour and he's praying. He's not asking for a vision. He's not saying, I just long for some kind of prophetic experience. He's just praying, man. And this is where the common ordinary places become very holy is when God intervenes. He became hungry and wanted something to eat. Now that's very telling for the vision he's about to have. While they were preparing it, he fell into a trance. Another translation will say a vision. Okay, And he saw saw the heavens opened. Something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners on the earth. In it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds. And there came a voice, rise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter goes, no way, Lord, I've never eaten anything common or unclean. The voice comes a second time. Hey, what God made clean, don't call common. This happened three times. Who else do we know of in scripture heard the voice of God three times, didn't recognize his voice, didn't know what was being said, right? Until the fourth time around. Exactly, Samuel. Good job, guys, you're paying attention. Okay, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. Peter was inwardly perplexed. Does he have clarity on what the vision means? Did the interpretation come immediately? No. He was inwardly perplexed as to what the vision he had seen might mean. Did he know the meaning of the vision God showed him three times? No. So then you and I go, well, why would God show Peter three times something he knew Peter wouldn't understand? Because the fact that he saw it three times is going to confirm what's about to happen. God could have easily said, hey, just so you know, Jew and Gentile about to become one in Christ. I'm open to all people coming into my kingdom. Don't call them unclean anymore. There's some people coming your way. God could have given all these details. He doesn't. He does this very similar thing that he showed Jeremiah. Hey, what do you see? A melting pot coming from the north. But instead of an immediate interpretation, there's a gap. And Peter's going, I don't know what this means. What is happening? I am very confused. But there were men sent by Cornelius who were sent and they made inquiry for Simon's house. They stood at the gate and they called out whether Simon, who was called Peter, was lodging there. And while Peter was pondering the vision, did God speak directly to Peter or not? He did. Rise, kill and eat. Don't call unclean what God has made clean. That's an authoritative statement that can only come from the mouth of God. So... Seems as though God is talking directly to Peter. Why in a trance? Why in a vision? Well, what did Joel say? What did Acts 2.17 say? So pondering the vision, the Spirit said, Hey, three men are looking for you. Oh. Hold on. Couldn't have God just... God could have just talked through His Spirit to Peter and said, 
hey, forget the vision. Let me just talk to you directly like I used to do with Moses. God doesn't do that. There's always an invitation into deeper relationship every time God speaks. That's the one thing people miss about this. They get so obsessed with the details and the nuance and what does it look like. They forget that everything God does is for his glory and to invite us into a deeper understanding of his character. So everything God does, everything God says towards us is going to promote and increase our relationship with him and our intimacy with him. So the way God is leading Peter and showing him things and talking to him by his spirit, all these different angles and facets of God's character are coming together in this experience Peter's having. So while Peter's pondering the vision, three men look for him and the Holy Spirit says, not in a vision, the Holy Spirit says, three men are looking for you. Go down, accompany them without hesitation. I sent them. Peter still don't know what he saw. But he goes, they stay at the house. Uh, they eventually go to Cornelius. And um, <clears throat> Cornelius called his friends and relatives. And he's going, uh, hey, Peter, uh, good to meet you. Welcome to the house. Uh, God told us you had a message, so we're here to listen. When Peter entered Cornelius' house, you know, Cornelius fell down in worship. And Peter goes, stand up. I'm a man just like you. You know how unlawful it is for a Jew to associate with us. But God told me. I shouldn't call any person. Sorry, God showed me. I shouldn't call any person common or unclean. So when I sent, I came without objection. The vision God gave Peter was preparation for what Peter was about to do. Peter now had the category for, hey, I can go into a Gentile house because God essentially just gave me permission in a vision. I can go and relate with these people. Cornelius said four days ago, I was praying and a man stood in front of me with bright clothing and Cornelius will go on to explain what God told him that, you know, God told him to look for Peter and now you're here, Peter. So Peter opened his mouth and watch. Truly, I understand. What was he seeking to, to have on the rooftop with his vision? He was seeking for understanding. He was perplexed and confused, didn't know what it meant. But now he's standing in front of all these Gentiles and he's going, oh, truly I understand that God shows no partiality. In every nation, anyone who fears him and does what is right is acceptable to him. And then he'll preach the gospel, the spirit will fall on the people. But Peter now has clarity and understanding of the vision he was given. And guess what? He'll relay, he'll, he will relay this to the people the leadership in Jerusalem. Um, it's in verse... Ah, here it is. He's recounting what happened. He goes, um, I was in the city of Joppa, and in this trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet fell from heaven, it was four corners. I observed animals. I heard a voice say, rise and eat. And I said, nah, fam, I can't. But the voice came a second time. Don't call what God has made clean common. It's happened three times. And at that moment, three men arrived and Spirit told me to make no distinction. Um, as I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell. I'm just kind of skipping over the details. Um, if God gave the gift of the Spirit to them, who are we to stand in God's way? 
So the vision wasn't even clear to Peter. It, I'll say it like this. The interpretation of the vision came progressively. That's how I'll say it. It's, it wasn't just this one time like where Peter went, I get it. It was over time the understanding of the vision came. The vision became clearer and clearer as Peter kept doing things. He brought the Gentiles in. He, they slept there. They woke up the next day. They walked. They went to the town of Cornelius. They stood in their home. Peter starts preaching. This is all progressively unfolding and God is clarifying the vision over time. <clears throat> and God gave the vision, didn't he? Uh, in Daniel chapter 12, very similar thing happens with Daniel. He receives um, um, a vision of all these different wonders and stuff. Um, and he says, uh, I heard, but I did not understand. I did not understand. Then I said, Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? I don't understand. He said, go your way, Daniel. He doesn't give him clarity. He doesn't give him an interpretation. He says, go. You got your life to live, buddy. The words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many will purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly. None of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And Daniel's going, I, I thought I'm wise. Are you saying I'm not wise? Because I don't understand. And from that time, the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up. It'll be a 1290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1335 days. Go your way till the end. You will rest and stand in your allotted place. At the end of the days. <clears throat> Daniel didn't understand the vision he was given. God just said, go your way. You don't need to know the details. Just know the 1290 days. Plus to see who makes it to the 1335. Why did God show Daniel a vision that he knew Daniel was not going to fully understand? Well, we have that in our scriptures, don't we? We have the prophetic word confirmed, don't we? Where the recorded visions of Daniel for the sake of our faith, don't we? Job 33, again, God speaks in one way. I'm going to keep referencing this two ways, but man doesn't perceive it. Isaiah chapter 38 is another instance because we're answering the question, hey, when God speaks prophetically, especially to a prophet, do they always understand? Actually, I think there's better scriptures to prove this. Scratch Isaiah. We'll save Isaiah for last. We love you, Isaiah. Just not as much as Daniel. <clears throat> so, this is interesting. Okay. Daniel doesn't understand his own vision until he asks an angel for understanding. So Daniel's given a vision. Uh, it's most of what chapter 6 and 7 is about. And then Daniel says this, As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. Right. I approached one of those who stood there and I asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me he made known to me the interpretation of what? Of the things. What things? The things that he saw in his head, the visions. God gives Daniel a vision. Daniel's 
perplexed, anxious, he's alarmed. And so he approaches one of those standing with him in the vision. And he goes, can you show me the, the understanding of this, the interpretation? So he told me and he made known to me the interpretation of these things. And he'll go on to say, these four great beasts are this and the saints are this and, and the kingdom is this. So the point is that when Daniel receives a vision, there's not an immediate interpretation. He has to ask for it. And God does graciously give it through the person who's standing there with him in the vision. Um, in Judges chapter 7, this is an interesting thing. Um, Gideon is like, ah, can we do this? Can we beat the Midianites, uh, or the Amalekites and the, and the Midianites? <coughs> when Gideon came near to the camp, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade, right? So one of the warriors that Gideon's going to go up against tomorrow in war, he hears them talking about a dream. And he said, ah, he's talking to his buddy, listen, I had a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian, came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down, so the tent lay flat. So this person's relaying a dream. He doesn't necessarily know the meaning or the interpretation. That doesn't seem like. <clears throat> but the other person who he's sharing it with does have the interpretation. And his comrade answered, This is none other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. Now that sucks to have that vision of your defeat from the God that you're going up against. That, that straight up sucks. I get that. But it's interesting here. God gives a vision to an unbeliever and the interpretation to another unbeliever. So it seems like God brings them together in this perfect scenario for Gideon over here so that his faith is strengthened. And um, one has a dream, the other interprets what it means. So the interpretation came after. I mean, just like Pharaoh's dreams, just like the, the cupbearer's dreams. And you talk about um, Genesis chapter 37. We have um, the cupbearer and we have the baker. Their dreams, they're perplexed and anxious and worried. And then Joseph goes, hey, I could probably help. And he interprets the dreams, right? Um, same with Pharaoh, same with Nebuchadnezzar. Um, so <clears throat> just the, the point is, whether it's Peter, uh, whether it's Daniel, um, I'll take you to Isaiah. I said I'd save Isaiah for last. Isaiah 38, in those days Hezekiah became sick. He's the king of uh, Jerusalem, Judah, and he was at the point of death. Isaiah the prophet, the son of Amos, came to him and said, Hey, set your house in order. You're going to die. You will not recover. Hezekiah turned his face to the wall and prayed to the Lord. Prayed to the Lord. And said, Please, Lord. Remember how I've walked before you in faithfulness. With a whole heart, I've done what is good in your sight. Now, Hezekiah has already received a word from Isaiah. Isaiah already said, you're going to die. Set your house in order. You will not recover. What we're about to see is that either was a conditional word, right? Or Isaiah misheard God, which I don't think is the case. I think it was a conditional word. And here's, here's why. Hezekiah wept bitterly, and he turns to God, and he starts praying after hearing this news. Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Go and say to Hezekiah, Thus says the Lord, the God of your father, I've heard your prayer. I've seen your tears. 
I will add 15 years to your life. Can we just say the grace and the mercy of God is all over this passage? I will deliver you in this city out of the hand of the kings of Assyria. I will defend this city. Here's a sign that the Lord will do this thing. I'll make the shadow cast by the declining sun on the dial of Ahaz. Turn back 10 steps. So the sun turned back on the dial, the 10 steps by which it had declined. A writing of Hezekiah, king of Judah, after he had recovered from his sickness. Now, God said you will not recover from the sickness. Uh, He does recover from the sickness after praying. So this is either an instance of God already knowing what he's going to do, but he's kind of tugging Hezekiah to come into it. He's like, um, hey, you're going to die. You won't recover. That seems to be a conditional word. Um, Should you persist in the state you're in? But instead, Hezekiah shifts and he prays. And then God answers and he goes, you know what? You won't die. You will recover. God is very gracious. Very gracious. And so, um, I don't remember the point in me sharing this when it comes to answering the question of if... Oh, that's what it was. I think I've given you biblical uh, truth to reinforce the question uh, or to answer the question, hey... You know, does God always give the the meaning or the purpose of a prophetic vision immediately, if at all? Uh, the answer seems to be no. Daniel left not even knowing the interpretation at the end of at the end of Daniel, of what he saw. He only had partial details, but not what he wanted to know. Um, we have Peter not knowing what the vision means in Acts. <clears throat> we have Job talking about how, you know, I forget where it says the interpretation belongs to the Lord. I think that's Joseph. Um, interpretations belong with God. And then we have, uh, you know, one of the Midianite warriors talking to the other one saying, I had a dream. And the other one goes, this is what it means. So the interpretation came after. Same with Joseph's dreams. Same with Pharaoh's dreams. Same with the cupbearer's dreams. Same with King Nebuchadnezzar's dreams. The interpretation came after, which didn't make it not from God. Just meant God had a purpose in letting there be a gap between the word and the interpretation or the meaning. And so here's um, kind of a follow-up question. Does God sometimes give the prophetic word to someone and the interpretation to another? And the answer seems to be, yeah. Uh, That happened in Judges. That happens with Joseph and Pharaoh. Happens with Nebuchadnezzar and Daniel. The answer is yes. Are there sometimes where God doesn't give the meaning at all? And it's just... A message to be relayed. Well, with Daniel, yeah, his unique case study. I don't think that happens often. Um, but that doesn't mean God spoke without purpose. Because like I said, just because Daniel didn't fully understand it, doesn't mean it has no other purpose. Okay? So God doesn't always give clear prophetic revelation to his people and speak. as Like when we hear it say clearly, I mean, I know it's you. I know what you want. I know all the details. God doesn't always speak like that. But just like in Deuteronomy chapter, um, <clears throat> Deuteronomy or Numbers chapter 12, rather, Numbers 12 shows us that God does speak in riddles sometimes, dark riddles. Uh, since we prophesy in part, so scripture says we prophesy in part. Now think about Israel who had the clearest revelation of God, yet they had no eyes to see or ears to hear. So if God doesn't always give the meaning of a prophetic vision or word immediately, 
it's possible for there to be a gap between the prophecy and the understanding. And that gap is left up to the sovereignty of God. But we can, of course, pursue him and ask for clarity and understanding like Peter, like Daniel, um, like Joseph and um, whoever else it is that's asking for. I think I said Peter already. Um, so I think this means that just because you don't have immediate clarity or understanding of the purpose of a prophetic word or vision or dream, it doesn't mean it isn't from God. That's just a silly thing to say. Because there is a gap between a prophetic word um, and the understanding, interpretation, meaning of that. God is overseeing that. You and I are just to stand back in awe and say, whatever you show me, I'm going to press into you more to discover more of you and hopefully clarity on this word. Let me say, <clears throat> let me ask another question. Okay. I think we have about one more page of notes and then we're done. Does the fact that God is speaking directly to a person. So let's just imagine God is speaking directly to Isaiah. There's no middleman. It's just God and Isaiah or God and Moses. Let's take Moses. God's talking directly to Moses. Okay. Does the fact that God is talking to directly, directly to a person, does that guarantee perfect reception and understanding on the part of the hearer? I'll say it like this. Can a prophet see or hear the right thing? And still conclude the wrong thing. Can a prophet, like an actual prophet ordained by God, can they see or hear the right thing and still conclude the wrong thing? Many Christians have this assumption about prophecy or prophets. God's going to speak to us clearly or not at all. Because God is not a God of mystery and God's not a God of you know, confusion and they, and they conflate confusion with that gap of understanding where it's not there yet. Oh, God's confusing you if he's not immediately telling you what the vision means. Really? So I, I think if, there's, if the answer is yes, a prophet can see or hear the right thing from God and still make the wrong conclusion, the issue is not with God. The issue is with the hearer, the receiver. God speaks perfectly. No one's denying that. The recipient is not perfect, and God knows that when he chooses to speak to us. We're imperfect, we're fallible, right? Um, we don't have perfect discernment and understanding and, and recognition. God knows that, but he still chooses to speak to us. Uh, Genesis 40, verse 8, this is what Joseph says about dreams, and I think this is true of all prophetic words in general, okay? Genesis chapter 40, verse 7 or 8. Uh, Joseph's in the jail cell with the cupbearer and the, the baker, and they're really sad, they're fearful, they're worried, they're anxious. Maybe some of you are that. And they're, and Joseph goes, hey, why are you guys so down? And they say, well, we've had dreams, and there's no one to interpret them. Some of you, the lack of peace and joy in your life is just the lack of clarity and direction from God. Like, not that he hasn't given it, but you haven't sought him for it, or you haven't really desired it. <clears throat> Clarity from God and direction and guidance often brings about a lot of joy and peace, knowing I'm going where he wants. And so for those of you that um, deal with anxiety, fear, worry, whatever it may be, sometimes you just need to lean into God for the clarity you so desperately want. And he'll give that overtime as he, as he pleases, or, you know, 
Not at all, because you don't need to know those things. But either way, Joseph says, don't interpretations belong to God? When it comes to words from God, like Samuel hearing the voice of God, when it comes to dreams, when it comes to visions, any prophetic word God gives to an actual prophet, regardless of the word, the meaning and the interpretation belongs to God. So this means, okay, um, that the way God speaks to prophets is going to promote dependency on him. God will not speak in a way where the prophet no longer needs to lean on God. God speaks to prophets and people in a way that keeps them humbly dependent on him. Um, so let me show you a few examples, okay, in scripture of people who heard the right thing but made the wrong decision. Like they heard the right word or saw the right vision, and but somewhere in between they concluded the wrong thing. Or um, they drew the wrong interpretation or meaning. Okay. Acts 21 verse 4. Having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. This is Luke, the companion of Paul. He's, account, he's you know, recounting what happened. Through the Spirit, they were telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Through the what? Hold on. Through the what? Okay, so we have disciples who are through the Spirit telling Paul, don't go to Jerusalem. Why? They know what's waiting for Paul there. In fact, if you scroll down to verse 10, while we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus, by the way, there's a New Testament prophet for you post-resurrection and ascension. That's not usually where people have problems when we talk about is prophecy for today. Usually it's about the canon of scripture. So, but some people think there's no New Testament prophets after Jesus. Agabus comes down a prophet from Judea and he comes to Luke and Paul and he took Paul's belt, bound his feet and his hands. And he said, here's what the Holy Spirit says. This is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns his belt. And they will deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this. So this is Luke talking. When we heard this prophecy from Agabus, we and the people there urged him, don't go up to Jerusalem. Don't. Well, that's what verse 4 said. Through the Spirit, people are saying, don't go up to Jerusalem. Does that mean the Spirit of God is telling them to tell Paul, don't go to Jerusalem? Is the Spirit of God using them to warn Paul, don't go there? Let's keep reading. <clears throat> then Paul answered, what are you doing? You're weeping and breaking my heart. I'm ready not only to be in prison, but even to die for the name of Jesus. Since he wouldn't be persuaded, we ceased and we said, let the will of the Lord be done. <clears throat> Um, I forget where it is that Paul says the Holy Spirit testifies that imprisonment waits for me. Acts 20, okay? So let me show you that when we get to Acts 21, this is not new information for Paul. <clears throat> if you go to the chapter prior, 
This is what Paul says. I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except the Spirit testifies in every city, imprisonment and afflictions await me. So he's constrained by the Spirit to what? To go to Jerusalem. The Spirit of God is moving Paul towards Jerusalem. But here in chapter 21, in verse 4, we see these people telling Paul through the Spirit, don't go to Jerusalem. I don't believe this means that the Spirit of God is telling them, tell Paul not to go there. When the Spirit of God very clearly is telling Paul, go to Jerusalem in chapter 20. I think what's happening here is what we see in verse 10 through 14. <clears throat> these believers have information from the Spirit, from God, from prophets, that when Paul goes to Jerusalem, he's going to suffer. He's going to be imprisoned. They take that prophetic data and they analyze it by their own human mind and conclude, Paul, don't go there. <clears throat> they have the right information. They have the right data. Okay. But they make the wrong conclusion. God is leading Paul to Jerusalem. But some of these people are standing in the way and going, we know prophetically by the Spirit, by the prophets, Agabus told us that when you go there, you're going to suffer. Don't go there. And Paul's going, I need to. The Spirit of God has already testified what's waiting for me there, and I'm compelled to go there by him. So Agabus and the prophets and the believers around Paul in chapter 21, in verse 4 and verse 10 through 14, they have the right word, they have the right data, they heard the right thing from God, but they interpreted it wrongly, and they came to the wrong conclusion. They came to a human <clears throat> conclusion. This is why I say, when God gives a prophetic word to a prophet or anyone, that doesn't eliminate the opportunity for the human mind to take that data and turn it into something God never said. My human mind can process a prophetic word, and, you know, through my human reasoning, I can make the wrong conclusions. I can draw the wrong interpretation and meaning. I can become prideful about it. I can be selfish. I can hide that data and not choose to share it, you know. So just because you receive a prophetic word doesn't guarantee that you'll come to the right conclusion on your own or you'll make the right decisions on your own. It's along the way, whether I'm interpreting, whether I'm making the application, whether I'm seeking for more clarity, I'm leaning on God. That's the whole point of this, man. In 1 Samuel 16, verse 6, the prophet Samuel is told this, okay? Go to Bethlehem and you'll find one of Jesse's sons. He is the one I've anointed to be the king, okay? 1 Samuel 16, fill your horn with oil. Go, I'll send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite. The Bethlehemite, I provided for myself a king among his sons. That's all Samuel knows. Samuel knows enough to go forward. <clears throat> As the prophet, he knows, I got to go to Bethlehem, meet Jesse, his household. One of his sons will be the king. He takes that data and you get to verse 6 and he looks at Eliab or Eliab, the oldest. And he said, surely this is God's anointed. The Lord's anointed is before him. The Lord said to Samuel, don't look on his appearance. Or on the height or his stature, I have rejected him. The Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks at the outward, the Lord looks on the heart. 
If God did not intervene, Samuel probably would have just anointed Eliab there on the spot. And like, this is him. You know what Samuel knew? One of Jesse's sons will be king in Bethlehem. Once he saw the first son, the oldest, he took that biblical prophetic data and he processed it through his own human reasoning and he concluded, that's the guy. Wrong. Samuel was actually sent to anoint David. He would have probably anointed the wrong one. Would have God left him up to his own devices? So I'm just saying Samuel took the prophetic word in the wrong direction and he let his own bias uh, and physical sight influence his conclusion. Because God only told him enough to go to Bethlehem, not enough to choose the right man. Once Samuel would see David, God would tell him that's the one. But Samuel jumped the gun and took that prophetic word and was about to say, Eliab's the guy. That's my guy. We take it to Numbers 22. There's a weird guy named Balaam. He gets quite a bit of airtime in Numbers and throughout Scripture. He, you'll see him. Okay. Balaam is actually referred to as a prophet in Peter's writings. Uh, Balaam is a seer. Okay, when you read about seers in the Old Testament, they're prophets that specifically specialize in seeing visions. That's just the way God chooses to communicate to them. Okay. So in Numbers chapter 22, we have Balaam, a prophet, a seer. He truly hears from God. This, the text does not say that he's not hearing from the true and living God. He really does hear from the true and living God of Israel. <clears throat> Here's what happens. Um, uh, the king of Moab, Balak, sees the people of Israel are coming to essentially take over his territory. So he sends some messengers to Balaam, not Balak, Balaam the seer. And he goes, hey, come and curse these people for me. Because that's what Balaam does. Um, so the elders of Moab, they go, they come to Balaam, they give him Balak's message, right? And he said, lodge here for tonight, I'll bring back word to you as the Lord speaks. So the princes of Moab stayed with Balaam and God came to Balaam and said, who are these men with you? God, don't you know? Well, he did. Balaam said, Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, has sent me, uh, saying, Behold, a people has come out of Egypt. It covers the face of the earth. Now come curse them for me. Perhaps I'll be able to fight against them and drive them out. God said to Balaam, You shall not go with them. You shall not curse the people. They are blessed. That's all Balaam needed to know. God has spoken finally, conclusively. It's done. Don't go there. Don't go with them. Don't curse the people. They are blessed. That won't change. Balaam gets up in the morning and tells that to the messengers and goes, look, God refused to let me go with you. Is that true? Yes. Princes of Moab rose, went to Balak, and Balak goes, you know, let me send more princes and more opportunity. Mm -hmm. So Balaam <clears throat> gets the messengers to come back. And he goes, oh, man, Balak just doesn't give up. Ugh. Look, if Balak were to give me his house full of silver and gold, I couldn't go beyond the command of the Lord. I can't. 
what you won't find out yet, but you will, is that Balaam really wants to go. Like he wants the riches. He wants the honor. Scripture will look back in hindsight and make comments about Balaam. Balaam wants to go. He wants the riches and honor that can be provided. The only problem is he can't because God's already spoken. He can't get around that command. But look what he does. He doesn't say God has already spoken. He says, stay here. Let me know what more the Lord will say to me. Maybe God will change his mind. Maybe he'll allow me to go and just kind of wiggle my way into honor and riches. God came to Balaam at night and said, If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. Only do what I tell you. Balaam rose in the morning, saddled his donkey, and he what did he do? He went. Some commentaries I've read have said, Well, the, God said, If they come and call you in the morning, go with them. The text doesn't say they actually came and called. Balaam presumptively went ahead and just went with the princes of Moab. He didn't wait for that condition to be met. God said, look, go with them if they call you. They never called. So Balaam, you know, jumped the gun and didn't wait for that condition to be met. Because clearly we're going to see that God is against Balaam's decision to go. Okay. This was an opportunity for Balaam to actually listen. If the men have come to call you, rise, go with them. Only do what I tell you. So that's what I've heard some commentaries say. Others will say Balaam should not have even asked the second time for God's word because God already spoke. He didn't need clarity. The seer, Balaam, he received a word from God. That's all he needed. He wasn't going to change his mind, obviously. So once the messengers came back, Balaam should have been like, guys, no, leave. I, I won't. But instead, Balaam leaves that opportunity open. He goes, well, let me see what God wants. God, maybe? And um, he ends up going in the morning. But the point is, okay, he chooses to go with the guys in the morning. And he decides to hear what he wants. God already said, don't. Balaam takes that data. And he it seems to be processed through his own selfish ambition for money and honor and riches. Okay. And so he was influenced by his love of money. That's, that's what influenced his decision to go. But potentially, that's what also influenced. Because um, either Balaam knows he's going against the word of the Lord. Or he thought he heard God say something he didn't. Right? I think um, that there's a chance the condition didn't get met. Look, if they, if they come to call you in the morning, go with them. Well, they didn't. Balaam presumptively went and didn't really listen. The point is, being a prophet, and he, Balaam is referred to as a seer. He hears from God. Being a prophet doesn't eliminate your need for confirmation and clarity and understanding outside of yourself. Once I get a word from God, I don't look to my own mind and reasoning to process and come to conclusions about that word without God. So this is how some people view prophecy. They're like, well, God gives a word, right? Once you have that, you don't need God anymore. You can go and do what you want with it. And hold on, the interpretation belongs to God too. The, the direction for that word, the application of it, clarity and the details that surround it as I take each step, that belongs to God too. So I don't just need to lean on God for a word or for clarity, but also for the understanding and the application. You need to cling to him. You know, David actually was, is a prophet. He's referred to as a prophet. 
Still, David had seers and prophets around him to hear the voice of the Lord more clearly. So th there's this common misunderstanding that says, well, if you're a prophet, you don't need uh, outside, you don't need God to speak to you in any other way except directly to you if you're a prophet. Like if I'm a prophet, I don't need anyone else to tell me what God is saying. Being a prophet in the Old Testament as well does not eliminate your need for other believers, other saints, to help clarify the voice of God in your life. Um, for instance, I think we've answered the question, yes, you can be a prophet and see or hear the wrong, the right thing and still make the wrong conclusion. Balaam, um, Samuel, uh, <clears throat> prophet Agabus and the people that around there, prop, you know, interpretation belongs to God, that kind of thing. Even when it comes to the word of God, for those that think prophecy has ceased, let's just take the word of God. Even when you're reading it yourself or listening or hearing the word of God, there is potential for misinterpretation and misunderstanding. Even if I were to tell you hypothetically the word of God perfectly and say everything that it's saying and never mess up, once that word hits your heart, there is still a journey that word goes through to get to your mind and your heart. Meaning, there's a, let me read, let me read what I wrote down. Okay. Even with the infallible word of God, there's potential for misinterpretation and misunderstanding on the part of the listener and on the part of the pastor or the deliverer, right? So think about the pastor who's reading the Bible and communicating it. Think about the audience. Everyone has presuppositions. Everyone has biases. Everyone has preferences and desires that you can in, that can influence your reception of God's word. This is what Matthew 13, the parable of the sower, is about. There's different heart conditions. Okay, people who are hearing directly from God Himself, Jesus, hearing the parable of the sower right in front of them. They're seeing Jesus. That word was hitting nothing. Some of them were hard ground. Some of them were shallow ground. Some of them were thorny ground. Some of them were good ground. Jesus communicated the word of God perfectly. No flaws. And you go, well, they didn't have eyes to see or ears to hear like Isaiah prophesied. The point is, even with the word of God, with Jesus right in front of you communicating the infallible scripture as the word of God himself, there's still potential for misunderstanding, misinterpretation, or just flat out processing that data through your own preferences and biases and presuppositions and not knowing it. So nowhere does it say in scripture that if God is going to speak to us, it has to be absolutely clear like this. Because even teachers misinterpret the clear word of God and misunderstand what it means sometimes. So if people are doing that with the clear canon of scripture, how much more can we misinterpret prophetic words from God? How much more can we misinterpret or miss or even, you know, um, yeah, just miss the voice of God in our life? We'll end with these two questions. Ready? Does God give prophetic words to prophets in pieces sometimes?
does God give prophets um, words or visions in pieces sometimes, progressively over time? I think of Joseph. He was given one dream, and it was about, uh, you know, the wheat. His brothers were like bundles of wheat, and then he was a big piece of wheat, like you want to be when you grow up. What do you want to be when you grow up, Nancy? I want to be a big old piece of wheat. Oh, good for you. Let's go find your parents. He's a giant piece of wheat, and then their pieces, big old bundles of wheat bowing down to him. But the second dream takes it a step further. Now they're celestial beings, right? Stars. And even the sun and the moon, representative of his mom and dad, bow down to, to Joseph um, <clears throat> as a star. And you're supposed to see Jesus in that mainly, okay? But the point is, that vision gets, gets ratcheted up. There's more clarity, more details in that dream that Joseph has than in the first one. Or in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 10 through 12, okay? 1 Peter 1, 10 through 12, it talks about how, again, okay, concerning this salvation, the prophets who prophesied about the grace that was to be yours, they searched and inquired carefully. And I've already referenced this, but let's go back. What were they inquiring? They inquired carefully. What? Well, what person or what time the Spirit of Christ in them was indicating when he predicted the sufferings and the subsequent glories of Christ. So the Spirit of Jesus in these prophets is indicating and predicting that there will be sufferings of the Messiah and glory of the Messiah. The details surrounding that, right, weren't given to all the prophets. They all saw the same prophetic vision of Jesus from different angles. They saw different parts. They saw it to varying degrees. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves, but you in the things that have now been announced to you through those who preach the good news by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Things into which angels even long to look. So even with the nature of the prophetic uh, message of salvation, that message is progressively unpacked throughout human history. In other words, God brings more clarity to the mystery of the gospel itself on a grand scale. How much more on a smaller scale with prophets? Okay, so each prophet kind of built on each other and had more understanding or just a different level of understanding or a different angle. And you'd, you'd piece this mosaic of prophetic words together and you'd see Jesus. Now you look back in hindsight. Or how about Daniel? Daniel actually receives visions of the end in stages. So in year one, if you go to Daniel 7, <clears throat> in Daniel 7, he receives a vision in, in Belshazzar's uh, first year of reigning. In Daniel 8, the next chapter, in fact, let me just visually show this to you. God gives him visions of the end times in, okay, in um, progression over time. Year one of Belshazzar's reign, Daniel sees a vision in Daniel 7, okay? In year three of Belshazzar, this is two years later, okay? Daniel's given another vision that brings clarity to the first, right? Daniel, we don't have time to get into the vision. We'll talk about visions when we get to visions. Daniel 9, we have the first year of Darius now, who's, you know, in rulership. This is Daniel chapter 9, and he receives another vision, 
And it's just, it's building on each other. It's getting more expansive as the years go by. Uh, and then Daniel 10, it, we have uh, Cyrus, okay, king of Persia, in the third year of his reign, Daniel receives a vision. In fact, let me take you to Daniel 8, 27 and show you on a smaller level what this looks like. Because the question is, does God give prophetic words in pieces, visions in pieces? Well, yeah, not just with Joseph or the mystery of the gospel in its entirety or the prophets or with Daniel. Um, but also, if you go to Daniel 8, 27, <clears throat> it's right here. He receives a vision. And he goes, I, Daniel, was overcome, and I lay sick for some days. Then I rose. I went about the king's business, but I was appalled by the vision. I did not understand it. This is year three of Belshazzar's reign, mind you. So Daniel says, I don't understand the vision I was given. Then, okay, in chapter nine, chapter nine, it picks up with, in the first year of Darius, Son of Ahasuerus, by descent, a Mede. So you have the Medo-Persian Empire. Okay, This picks up in the first year of King Darius. And if you scroll down to verse 20, the understanding Daniel did not have finally comes. While I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sin of my people, Israel, presenting my plea before the Lord, my God, for the holy hill of my God. While I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, who I saw in the vision at the first, he came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. Okay? He made me understand. Oh. So how many years have passed? I don't know. I didn't do the, the math. But what, several years? Daniel went without understanding the vision he first received in the third year of Belshazzar. Now we have um, uh, the first year of King Darius. And Gabriel comes. Okay. Gabriel comes. And he says, uh, well, he made me understand, speaking with me and saying, oh, Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, so when Daniel's just praying for his people, he's not thinking about the vision. At the beginning of him praying for his people and mercy, understanding Jeremiah's prophecy about the 70 years, there's a, there's a word sent out. God says, Gabriel, go. A word went out, and I've come to tell it to you. You are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. Okay? So now understanding comes. Now understanding comes after how many years? I'm not sure. I'd have to look at the timeline of Persia or Babylon, Persia, and then um, <clears throat> the Medo-Persian Empire. The point of this is yes. The answer is yes. God does give words, vision in pieces. He does bring clarity over time. To say he doesn't or to say, oh, there's only two examples. Those are still examples. The amount of examples is irrelevant. The fact that it happens and the fact that Jesus um, or God has allowed this to be something that happens is something you should pay attention to with the prophets of old, with the mystery of the gospel, 
with Daniel, with Joseph and the dreams. I, I, I probably could have compiled more evidence. But the point is, yes, just because you don't have, I'll say it like this, just because you don't understand the vision God's given you a prophetic word, let's just assume it is God, doesn't mean it's not. If you don't have immediate understanding or if you only see a piece of it, God adds. This has been true of my life. I don't want to build a theology on pure anecdote, right? But I do want to reinforce what scripture says with personal testimony. And say, yeah, th this has been true of my life. As I look back, I've had visions in, in 2010, um, 2012, um, 2013, 2015, um, but somewhere between 2017 and 2018, um, 2020, and then recently this year. And then I look back and they build off each other. So that's what God does. Um, Here's the last question. Does God always give practical instruction or application with a prophetic word? Okay. In other words, is the word God gives to a prophet sometimes just clarifying and just confirming or strengthening as we saw the purpose of prophecy in the beginning of the video? Because some would say, look, if there's no practical legs to the vision God gives, it's probably not from him. Because if God's going to speak, he's going to speak with a purpose and you'll know what to do. And he'll tell you what to do, actually. So if God doesn't tell you what to do about the word you're given or with a vision you see, then it's probably not from God. That's what I've been told. Well, I'll tell you what. If you go to Acts chapter 11, Prophet Agabus stands up. And I'm just going to give you a couple examples. Prophet Agabus. Um, uh, right here. In these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. So Jerusalem is like a funnel for prophets. One of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the, by the Spirit, hey, there's going to be a great famine over all the world. That's it. At least that's all the details Luke communicates. So the disciples hear that and they don't go, you're probably just, you know, a little drunk this morning, buddy. Why don't you go home, sleep on it? They're not, they're not, they're not despising prophecy. Um... They're not denying it. They're not belittling it. Um, there's not a lot of detail around it that Luke actually records. But look at verse 29, okay? This is where the element of human reasoning comes into play. Because we put it all on God and we're like, well, if he, if he spoke, he'll tell me what to do about it. Really? God gave you a vision of repentance and you need him to tell you what you need to do? I think he's telling you to repent. <laughs> so... Verse 29, so the disciples determined, it doesn't say God told them, it doesn't say part of the prophecy was like, hey guys, it's me God, I think you should, the disciples determined with the reasoning and wisdom God gave them, everyone according to his ability should send relief to the brothers that live in Judea. Whoa, it's like God, it's like I shouldn't wait for God to do all the thinking for me. He's given me a mind. I can reason through scripture. I can filter my thoughts through the word of God. I can pray. I can fast. I can get counsel. But when I get a vision or a word or I, there's a dream, I just it's kind of sitting weird in me. And I'm going, Lord, I don't know. I can at least do something in response. And the disciples go, well, let's tell the brothers to start sending relief to the brothers and sisters that live in Judea. God didn't tell them to do that. They decided to do that. 
Was that the right thing to do? It sure, it sure seems like it. They decided based on the information God has given, we should probably, and this is what God does a lot with the famine thing. He does it with um, Jacob and his sons. He does it with Joseph. He does it with Pharaoh's dreams. He does it with um, Abraham and Isaac. All these different things. Okay, so let me just take you to one practical example of, yes, sometimes God gives a word without telling you what to do about it because it's pretty clear. <laughs> you can have reasoning and you can come to conclusions on your own. Hi, Paula. It's good to see you, sister. Genesis 41. Okay, we have the dream. Here's the dream Pharaoh was given. In my dream, I saw standing on the banks of the Nile, seven cows, super fat, super attractive, which is, by the way, weird. I know what he means. Came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor, super ugly and thin, judgmental much, Pharaoh, such as I'd never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows, but when they had eaten them, no one would have known they had eaten them, for they were just as ugly as the beginning. Then I woke up. The same thing happens with ears of grain. Okay? Two dreams. Um, and then Joseph said to Pharaoh, hmm, God's revealed to you what he's about to do. Now, he hasn't told you what to do about it. He has not told you what to do about it. He's telling you what he's going to do, Pharaoh. For seven years, there's going to be good years. For seven years, there's going to be bad years, famine. So... God has shown to Pharaoh what he's about to do. There's going to be seven years of great plenty, abundance. After that, famine. The famine's going to consume the land. And the plenty that was there, not even going to remember it. And the reason you had two dreams is because it's fixed by God. So sometimes the amount of times you have a dream or a vision or a word apparently might have some indication of how serious God is about it. Um... Now, therefore, let Pharaoh select a discerning, wise man, set him over the land of Egypt, uh, appoint overseers, take one-fifth of the produce of the land. And again, now he's about to tell Pharaoh what to do. This is the insight and the wisdom of Joseph that God has given him. But Joseph didn't say, hold on, God didn't tell me what to do about this. He just told me what's happening. Oh, no, a famine's coming. Seven years of abundance, seven years of lack. I'm not sure what to do because God didn't tell me. My wife and I were just talking about this. How sometimes we shut off our reasoning because we become so overly, unhealthily dependent on God for every step. And it says, don't lean on your own understanding, but acknowledge him in all your ways. Right? In all your ways, acknowledge him. Every single way. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Weirdly enough, Josh just posted that as it came to mind. In all your ways, acknowledge him. This doesn't mean shut off my reasoning and don't think about anything until God clearly tells me what to do about the famine that's coming. It's pretty clear. There's reasoning. You have critical thinking. You have a mind. God has given you wisdom. Lean on him the whole time. But make practical steps forward in response to what God has said. So does God always give an application or do this with the vision? No. No. That would eliminate this partnership thing. It would make this more like a robot where God's like programming you and winding you up. God wants you to enjoy relationship with him. 
part of that is thinking for yourself and bringing your thoughts to him and going, I feel like I'm supposed to do this. I'm going to step forward. If you don't want me to, shut it down. If you want me to, leave it open and bless it. But I'm trying to be faithful with what you told me and showed me. This is just a misunderstanding across the church. That if there's no clear applicational step, can't be from God. Really? Where do these categories come from? I could have shown you more. I just felt like two was enough. Two is enough, man. You want more? Go read scripture yourself and find out. <laughs> oh, man. So look, this is session one on prophecy. We talked about what genuine prophecy is. Is it always future-oriented? What's the point or the purpose of prophecy? Is it always the same? Does God always speak to people the same way? Or prophets? Do individuals or prophets ever receive personal messages just for them? Does a prophet have prophecy on tap? Like you just turn on the water? Does a prophet always know when God is speaking? Do they always recognize his voice? Does God always give the meaning and the purpose of a prophetic vision or word? Right? Or at all? Or immediately? Does God, um, can a prophet hear or see the right thing and still make the wrong decision and conclusion or interpretation? Does God give prophetic insight in pieces sometimes? Um, does God always give practical instruction with a prophetic word? Tomorrow or Wednesday, uh, more likely, Lord willing, tomorrow, we'll talk about New Testament canon, what that means for prophecy. We'll talk about prophets. This, this office we see, <clears throat> and then we'll talk about, is there biblical precedence for training uh, the gift of prophecy, if indeed it's even active? Like, let's just say hypothetically, is there precedence for someone who had the gift of prophecy to be trained up? What does that look like? If you didn't already know, this is above reproach ministry. This is my full-time job to support my wife and two kids. This is the ministry God has called us to start, leaving California in faith, coming to Florida, here we are, baby. We have a ton of free resources um, that we've compiled over the last year and created. Uh, we have free devotional studies. We have free Bible study skills courses. We have free Bible study worksheets. We have free Bible study workshops, um, online Bible study classes. We have our online church, which is going on right now, and I'm totally missing it, but it is what it is. Um, and we have uh, my book, you can get, Fruitful. Um, the Essentials to Living the Most Abundant, Satisfying Christian Life. Um, and if you didn't already know, um, I have some plans for 2023. There's some stuff we're going to be doing, implementing, changing, really focusing on. And you can check out my recent YouTube posts in the community tab. Uh, the announcements I've made, go check that out. I put the calendar up, well, a, a tentative calendar of what Bible teaching series we're going to go through. Um, and if you'd like to donate to this ministry and give, you can donate right here at AboveReproachMinistry.com slash donate. Um, link is in my TikTok bio as well as the YouTube description. You can give through credit or debit card. You can send a check. You can give through PayPal, Cash App, Venmo, um, Patreon. Um, you can get your church merch. You know, all this different stuff you can get. We're not like an official 501c3 or anything like that. Just an online ministry that does stuff and you want to support what we're doing we're creating um, free resources to resource the church in short like our general mission is we're moving people towards Jesus I'm not doing it God's making it happen through our efforts but the way we're moving people towards Jesus 
is we're teaching people how to read the Bible, okay, so that you can live and teach the Bible yourself. That's what we're doing. Um, if you think that's an admirable mission, biblical literacy and theology and, and faith strengthening, um, then feel free to give. That's what supports this online church and all the content we create that's completely free to everyone around the world. Um, that would mean a lot to us. I'm trying to get some money together. Uh, I don't have the money myself, but I'm almost like funding it through asking you guys to help fund it. Um, we need some tech improvements. This camcorder is going to die any day. I see evidence, evidence of that all the time. And if I don't have a, a camera, I can't do this ministry. It just falls apart. So I trust God. Um, if you want to give toward our, our vision and what we're trying to do, I'm trying to get a new camera, a new soundboard. We're going to kick up a podcast, all this different stuff. It's going to cost a hefty amount of money. So if you want to give towards it and make this possible, help us keep reaching people, um, resourcing the church, building people up in Christ, you can help us and give any way you want on our website. All right. I think that is it. Join the online church if you haven't already. Um, it's through Discord. Love to have you. And I think that is it. I'm going to go rest. Thank you, Lori, for that beautiful gift. That is awesome. Um, that really is going to go into all that God has called us to do. So thank you, thank you. Um, and you guys have, hope you had a Merry Christmas. Whether or not you think it's pagan, still going to say it. Merry Christmas, celebrating the birth of Jesus, whatever you call it. So I love you guys. Keep moving towards Jesus. And I will see you guys tomorrow, Lord willing, for session episode number two on this series called Prophetic. All right? See you guys there. Bye.